recording. Hello and welcome to the Ramgad Pod, the Realtors Association of Maui Government Affairs Director podcast. I am your host, Jason Economou, Government Affairs Director for the Realtors Association of Maui, and I am joined today by Lawrence Carnicelli, former Government Affairs Director for the Realtors Association of Maui, current chair of the Maui Planning Commission, and managing director for Oluwalu Ilua Associates. Hello, Lawrence. You know what? You, you've you got your FM DJ voice going on. Yeah. Like, welcome. I, I, <laughs> I once worked as a, um, well, it wasn't a real job, but I did have a radio co-host job for, for a minute. I can I was, see that. You got, was, you got a good radio voice. I enjoy it. It was actually one of my childhood dreams. I used to sit and listen to talk radio and people don't really believe me that, nice. that I used to do that, but I always wanted to be on the radio. And this is just my way of cheating the system and um, doing my own thing. This so. is modern day AM radio. Exactly. That's exactly what this is. <laughs> just as exciting. <laughs> Thank you, Rush Limbaugh. Ooh, we're, we won't get into that quite yet. We'll, we'll get into to the Rush Limbaugh politics of, of things if you want to. Um, anyway, Lawrence, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Um, it is my pleasure. I had Dave DeLeon on here, and I just, I loved it so much talking to a, a fellow GAD. And, ah, yes. You know, and you're still very active with the, the realtor community, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I was, well, before I became GAD, I was a realtor for 16 or 17 years, and then was a GAD for a few, and then after I left the uh the realtor position, I just re-upped my license again. So I'm, I'm a broker again and do that. I, I'm not, I don't do day-to-day -day real estate, you know, like I'm not a, you know, practicing realtor necessarily, but I have, you know, I've helped out a couple friends and done my own stuff, whatever. So it's just, it's good to have the license. And when you were doing that 16 year bit where you were right. licensed, was that your active day-to-day? -day yeah, day? that was, that was my, my J-O-B. Yeah, or as as Tracy Stice once said, a realtor wakes up unemployed every day. <laughs> you wake up unemployed and you go look for a job every single day. So yeah, for 16, 17 years, that's what I did. I woke up and looked for a job, and uh, yeah, did I was pra a practicing realtor. Yeah, I, mostly on the west side. You know, let's. Um, I do want to talk about your your experience as a realtor, but first, let's get deep into your history. Let's really learn about Lawrence Carnicelli. Let's go into the psychology of it. Yeah. Should I lay down on the couch? <laughs> you can. We, Lawrence is in my office right now, what used to be his office. His old couch is still here, um, but I added a chair, so it's, it's kind of cozy now. Yeah, I like it. I like you like it. what I did with the place? I do. I do. And like I said, I'm glad to partake in the view of E.L. Valley again. Yeah, we have a beautiful view here. Everybody should come visit me. Um, so, Lawrence, where are you from? I grew up in, uh, born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I am uh, one of five kids. I have four sisters, two older sisters, two younger sisters, so I'm right smack in the middle. Um, as people have asked me before, like, oh, wow, do you know, I, you know, what do you know about women, right? It's just like I tell them, I know everything there is to know about women, and that is men will never understand them. <laughs> and so just accepting the fact that I will never understand women has me way ahead of the game. Did growing up with five sisters, four sisters, oh sorry, five of four total. sisters, five of you total. Right. Um, did did growing up in a house with so much female energy prepare you to be a father to a daughter? Gosh, that's a great question. I it had yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, and and I think it the modeling of my father 
you know, my father is, is 89 years old and he's as old school as it gets. You know, he was raised in the Great Depression and, and he is a man's man, you know, an athlete, you know, the locker room type. And then he had four daughters. And it was really interesting to see his orientation towards women um, being, you know, like, like his essence in a certain sense was very manly. And yet he has this complete feminine soft side that came out from having four daughters. And um, I would say that my dad was probably one of the first male feminists ever. Like he, because he, he just saw how just crass men are. Yeah. And, and he did not want his daughters to be treated that way. And so anyways, yeah, I, I would have to say is growing up in that situation, not only having four sisters, but then having a father um, who really appreciated having four daughters um, has absolutely prepared me to have a daughter. So, yeah. It's interesting that you'd put the label of male feminist on your dad. Him being such a uh, traditional manly man, how you describe him. Right. Do you think he would agree with that label? Oh, I think so. Oh, he would resist it, but I think if he thought about it, he would probably embrace it. It's kind of like, you know, my auntie, my mom's sister said that he was, you know, the very first um, environmentalist, too. And he's like, what are, what are you talking about? Because well, he was the guy that, you know, recycled rakes mm. and, you know, used the same styrofoam cup over and over and over again. You know, part of it was just because he grew up in the Great Depression. So it was, it was like this, this innate thing for him to recycle and to just reuse and, and all of that. And so he kind of was an environmentalist without knowing it. And so I think he's a feminist sort of without knowing it too. That is fascinating. I, I think it's so interesting that we're, you know, large portions of our population are very resistant to these labels. But when you mm. really get down to it, a lot of people ascribe to these ideas. I was, I was listening mm. to a- um, That's a good point. Recently, Radiolab started a podcast called Dolly Parton's America. And it's like a <laughs> nine-part series that just digs deep into Dolly Parton, and it's fascinating. But at one point, somebody made this, this case that she is the first real third-wave feminist, you know, the, the mm. feminine-looking feminist who, who does oh, her. Right. And, and she, they asked her about it, and she, like, very much did not consider herself a feminist. But then they mm -hmm. got into the behavior of feminism, and she said, well, how you behave is, is more how it is than, than what you call yourself. Um, and I, I've, I've been thinking about mm -hmm. that because my wife asked me about my own father, and he's, he's mm -hmm. from, from Greece, and he's kind of an old-timey, manly man sort of himself. Um, but very same thing. He's, he's all right. about equal rights, but if you talk to him about social justice, like any of the, the labels, you right. get very uncomfortable with it. Right. Well, ironically enough, I mean, my father's not, my dad's first generation American. Oh, okay. And so like his parents both came over on the boat, you know, and did not speak a lick of English when they got here. Um, but it was also at a time when everyone was discriminated against, you know, because they came over from Italy, um, mm. only spoke Italian, um, but they never spoke Italian to their kids because they didn't want their kids to be Italian. They wanted their kids to be Americano. That's how my dad was, yeah. Right, so, so like my dad tells stories about how my, my, you know, my grandfather is sitting there drinking wine with his buddies and they're all talking in Italian and then he would turn and speak broken English to the kids and then go back to speaking Italian to his buddies. Um, and so I think that, yeah, I, I could see your father would be very similar in that context. Yeah, 100%. Like that, yeah. that, that real Southern European, you know, man is a man thing. Yeah. Yeah. Just 
chain smoking cigarettes. <laughs> I don't know. My, my grandfather didn't smoke, but he uh, he was very proud of his wine. Ah. He was very present. One of my favorite stories is when my parents got married. My grandparents drove cross country because um, they grew. Up, my father grew up in New York, and anyways, my grandparents drove from New York cross country to Phoenix, where my parents were getting married. And he put a case of wine in the trunk of the car. And my grandmother, who ruled the roost, like you know, she's like the four foot two, you know, Italian woman that just everyone listened. It was just like what she said go. That was it. She's like, "What are you putting? You know, the the wine in here?" And, and my grandfather was like, "Oh, it's for the kids. It's for the kids. You know, it's it's a, it's a you know wedding present." Fast forward, you know, three weeks later, four weeks later, they're driving back home and all the wine's gone. And my dad knew exactly what was up, but he's, you know, kind of given my grandfather, you know, busting his balls a little bit. My grandfather's like, oh, what? You know, drink. You know, drink. <laughs> you know, so he had to drink it for him. So it's like, yeah. Anyways. So were your, were your grandparents around when you were growing up? Um, my, I knew two of them. Well, let's see. On my dad's side, I knew my grandmother. Uh, my grandfather died before I, before I was born, and then on my mother's side, I knew my grandfather, but my grandmother passed away actually on my third birthday. Oh, sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah. in church. Bringing back all she the was, good memories. Was, <laughs> no, it just is what it is. I mean, I, it's, it's, I think for a, a solid Catholic woman, I, I think that, you know, think about it. Is there a better place to die than have a heart attack in church? No, that, that just shows the devotion to St. Peter <laughs> right. when you get up there. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Take me, you know. So and you're well-dressed already. It's perfect. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, you're already in your, your Sunday best, you know. Make it easy for the coroner. Yeah, you know, I think that's why maybe as my mother ages, she goes to church more frequently just in case, just out of hopes that that might be well, where it I, ends. I think there's an element that we start cramming for our final exam. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like the older we get, we're like, oh, oh I better get spiritual in her. I, bet, I better get to know God before I'm standing before him, right? My dad had a heart attack um, about a year and a half ago now. Mm. And since then, he's like going to church and, and getting... Uh, they invited him to a retreat, and, and my mom was trying to get him to go to a retreat, and I said, you can't, you can't send him to a retreat. Yeah. She's like, why not? I was like, this man is so crass. He, they will not be able to handle his language. They're going to send him home early. That would be great, though. How fun would that be? What, what religion? Um, I, think, I think this is a Catholic Okay. Uh, retreat. They kind of bounced around a little bit because yeah. they weren't religious when I you was younger. Feel it out. And, and then I got involved with the Lutherans. Um, and then uh, my Catholic yeah. mother and Greek Orthodox father um, decided that they were going to hang out with Lutherans. And then I think they abandoned the Lutherans, went back to Catholicism. Hey, just, you know, go till you find one that fits for you, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all basically the same uh, as far as those Christian groups. That's going to get controversial. Let's, not, let's stay away from religion. All right. We'll, we'll stay out <laughs> of the religion prism. So so Arizona, you mm -hmm. grew up with your, your four sisters. What, what did your parents do? Um, I grew up about as traditional as it gets. Um, mom was stay-at-home mom, you know, uh, president of the PTA, drove us all, <clears throat> you know, to soccer practice and ballet and da, da da and all those other things and my father worked for um i guess what became it was ma bell at the time okay you know um before the breakup and then i, I think ultimately it was at&t was when he but he worked for them for 30 years retired with the gold watch uh the whole thing um although his story is, is pretty interesting again you know immigrant parents 
um, grew up in the Great Depression, went to school on the... He, my dad is the American dream. Mm. It's really interesting. It's like, okay, um, was drafted into the Korean Army, um, was assigned to recon, uh, to go to reconnaissance in Korea, but because he could hit a baseball, they switched him out of recon and gave him some job like sweeping the gym so he could be on the whatever camp it was in Louisville, Kentucky, so he could be on the baseball team. And he was on the baseball team with like professional guys. Because like think about it, in the Korean War, like Mickey Mantle got drafted, yeah. guys like that. So my dad was playing against guys like that. And so he didn't go to Korea. 80% of his squadron did not come back from Korea. So I go, you know, like, so in a way, I'm alive because my pops can hit a baseball. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I exist because my pops can hit a baseball. So anyways, but after that, GI Bill, uh, night school, uh, you know, uh, put away 10% of his salary every single Friday, saved, you know, bought a little piece of land out in the, you know, what was at the time the middle of nowhere for him and my mom to retire, you know, be their dream house. Um Retired, got the gold watch, still wears the gold watch, literally the gold watch. Um, they built their dream house in carefree Arizona. And if you're going to retire to some place, why not be carefree? It's got a dry heat. Yeah. Right. It's got a dry <laughs> heat. And, and so, yeah, is, is so he kind of just lived the American dream, like, you know, and now just, you know, is retired and that whole thing. So I can't even remember why I got off on that tangent and what the original question was that you asked me. <laughs> oh, I asked what your parents did. Oh, okay. And, so, yeah, so my dad was, he was that guy. So, yeah, they live on you know, on retirement savings and pension and, and live happily ever after. And my mom loves being a grandma and yeah. Is your dad super patriotic having lived the American dream? That's a great question. I would, he is not a flag waver. Mm. Um, I wouldn't even say he's a nationalist, but I know he's very proud of being an American because his parents were, mm. you know, like, I mean, if you think about it at the time back in the, I want to say 1910s, when my grandparents got, and, and on, this is true on both sides of my family. I mean, I'm talking a lot about my dad, but even on my mom's side, at that time, when you got onto a steamer and you had one trunk and that's it, you're leaving your family, you're leaving everyone behind. My grandmother on my dad's side was 13 years old, I think, when she came. Um, anyways, you, know, you had one trunk, and typically your family spent their entire life savings to put you on that boat to come to America to live a better life and to mm. live the dream. And they sacrificed everything that they had for their kids. And so I think that my dad has this inherent, like, just pride of genetics if nothing else you know just that thing with which you know that american dream you know so but is he a guy that's going to put the flag up on fourth of july and you know all those things no um is he does he get a little bit upset that my best friend doesn't stand for the national anthem yeah but he's not like it doesn't he doesn't lose sleep over it so yeah i think that there's an element of you know pride and just what america has provided for him and his family yeah yeah, I, I asked that because having a, a similar background mm. with, with my dad coming over, he's super patriotic. Oh, cool. Because, you know, America, it, it right. provided that dream because right. he grew up poor and 
in poverty in Greece and he came over and you can get everything and now his kids are successful because of the opportunities that were right. afforded to us by being born in America and you know and there's hard work and all that other jazz. How many brothers and sisters do you have? I, I have one older brother and one older half sister. Okay. Uh, from my mom's side. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so so And obviously then you guys are educated and done that whole thing as well. Yeah, exactly. See, so, and that's the thing I think that's a lot of the is missed sometimes is, 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 you know, in the American dream and stuff like that. It's like, okay, we all don't need to become, you know, gazillionaires, but had your dad or my grandparents stayed in Europe, mm. would we, you know, have the same quality of life that we have now? Cause that was one of the biggest things that my parents drilled into us as kids is they never talked about money. They never talked about success and attaining stuff. It was always about quality of life. Yeah. Everything was about what is your quality of life? What is your quality of life? What is your quality of life? And the fact that we live on Maui, I think it would make our parents, you know, just like, oh, okay, yeah. you know, what is that? We're sitting here on a Wednesday afternoon, just, you know, shooting the breeze, looking out at Iao Valley. Is a, I think we both have a very good quality of life. And I think that that's one of those things that is, is super cool. You know, that yeah, that you can see through their lens. Without sounding arrogant, I, I recognize that I am the American dream. Like, you know, I, sure. I have that embodiment. Um, right. My, I think about that pretty often, mm. too. I used to be super patriotic because of that. Mm. Um, but I got to tell you, in recent years, I've, I've been thinking about if that's still a possibility for, for a lot of folks. <laughs> and, and I don't know. And also, I think it has a lot to do with the, the immigrant group you come from. Uh, recently, my mm -hmm. wife was telling me about an article she read from the New York Times. And it was something, I think the title was along the lines of how Italians became white. Um, <laughs> and, and if you look at the history of immigration in America, right. you know, the Irish were others for a long time. And then, right. you know, the Italians started pouring in. So, so the white people that were already here were like, oh, well, you know, the Irish, at least they're like us, these Italians with their big noses and swarthy hairs. You know, it's like right. every group that comes. And, um, you know, I had, I had read an article along similar lines with the Greeks. And um, when I lived in South Carolina, people told me, you know, back in the day, the Greeks couldn't use the white water fountain. I'm just... It's, right. it's amazing to me because that's where Western civilization began. Right. Um, and, and I really... I, I fear for a lot of immigrant groups that, that come to America today because I, I don't think it's as easy of, of a path to, to becoming part of the, the broader included group. Um, I don't know if that's true, but. Well, two things. One is I can remember when I graduated from college, having a conversation with my father and he told me then, so this is 35, God, 35 years ago now. Um, 30, 35 years ago, 30 years ago, my father said, listen, what I did is not possible anymore. Like go to work for IBM, go to work for AT&T, go to work for whatever it is, work there for 30 years, retired with the gold watch, da, da, da. Like my dad knew then, and he was still working at that time. He wasn't retired. And he saw then like, you know, the American dream, like we are talking about, it's just not even possible. Um, and I think that that's true. You know, I mean, think about it, the average stay in a job now is something like two years. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's why LinkedIn is such a huge thing. Right. Or those different things. And then the the other part that I think is really interesting when you're talking about like all the different discrimination, discriminated groups, whether it be the Poles, the Irish, the Italians, the Greeks, whoever it is. 
my father grew up in this small town that was kind of made up of all of those. Mm. And, I, and I, I really have tried to talk to him about like, what was it? Because the, on one hand, my dad seems like he's very racist. Yeah. Because he's like going, oh, well, like it was a big deal when his sister married a Polish guy, right? Like that was a big deal. And yet he's the, like one of the most inclusive and accepting people that I know. And so it's like in, in our world now today to talk about like differences suddenly means that that means there's a division mm. where I think what in, in that era is they just embrace the fact like, oh yeah, just the poles are different. They just eat different food. They enjoy different things. You know, my mom was the crazy Croatian uh, uh, gypsies. You know, they partied and they drank and they sang and they played music and they were in vaudeville. And it's like, oh man, they were crazy. And you wouldn't necessarily associate, but there wasn't, there wasn't judgment on it. It was just like, oh, they're just different. And it was like, okay. My dad tells the story about going to Louisville when he was drafted in the army and he like didn't get segregation. Mm. Like he just didn't understand it. And yet here's this guy that talked all the time about the differences between the Irish. Like he, he wanted to play, he had a bunch of Irish friends that wanted to play softball. And so they shortened his name from Carnicelli to Carney. <laughs> and so he's just like, oh, oh, this is, this is Larry Carney. Carney, ah, so he could drink with them and he would, you know, go play softball. But you couldn't have an Italian guy playing in the Irish league. So, but then my dad goes to Louisville and like his best friend, um, it was a black guy in the barracks. And they go, he's like, hey, let's go to the diner. And the guy's like, no, no, I, I can't go in there. And my dad's like, no, no, you're with me. You can come because you're with, like, my dad just didn't get like the two drinking fountains thing and all like that. So it's like, I think that it's very interesting to, to see that different era where it's like we celebrated our differences rather than drawing divisions from our differences. Mm. I, you know, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know if that era ever actually existed. I think that it was... Maybe my dad's Pollyanna. Maybe. Be, because I think it was that there were there were clear lines of demarcation that, that really couldn't be crossed culturally, where everything was copacetic well, until you say, crossed yeah. those lines. Because you, you brought up the, the marrying uh, a Pole. Your, your right. dad's sister married married a Polish person. Um, my, my mother is Italian, um, and her family mm. is, is primarily from Sicily. And when she got Oh, that's married, not even out of Italy. It's Sicily's a whole other yeah, deal, Sicily's right? Yeah, Sicily's a whole, whole other whole thing. little country, right? And, and because she, she had been previously married to a Sicilian man, mm. and that's, that's where my, my older sister comes okay. from. Okay. When she got married, remarried to my dad and had kids, my brother and I were not accepted by, by her mother because we weren't, we weren't ah, pure blood. Right. We weren't Sicilians. Right. We, we, we had Greek in us, and it was like oh. we, we were as good as, as bastards for, for that. Um, Interesting. Meanwhile, my dad, doing business with Italians in New York, they, they would say, you know, una faccia, una racha, same face, same race. Um, and, and so for business purposes, of course, the Greeks, they're one of us. We're practically brothers. But right. when it came to, to bloodlines, it's like, oh, my God, a Sicilian and a Greek. Well, do you think, it, did your grandmother still live in Sicily? No, no, she oh, lived in America. Okay, because, okay. I, I mean, I, I think it's also along those same lines what you're talking about, though. In traveling around the world, which you have done, I find it fascinating that in the United States, I think it's the only country that I've come across when, when I ask you, what are you, you'll say Greek mm. and I'll say Italian, but there's nobody in Australia that calls themselves Irish, right? They're Australian. 
For, yeah. I mean, for the most part, yeah, right? I mean, part. it's just like we're this because we're the melting pot. So we kind of when you know, I guess if maybe if I'm in, you know, Istanbul and somebody asks me, I'll say I'm American. I'm not going to say I'm Italian. But like we sort of talk about that, like okay, same race, same face thing. But there is still we're new enough of a country where we still kind of talk about that. Yeah, yeah, and we're we're going through a period where I think growing portions of our population are just obsessed with race and identity and and you know ethnic belonging um you see that a lot here in hawaii especially yeah um though it's difficult to to compare hawaii to the rest of america or even to to include hawaii Agreed. in a conversation about about american culture yeah i mean that's definitely different but i i the part that makes me I guess sad in all of that is people are so quick to draw division again coming come from where I did where you know it's like um, you know from my mom and dad how they viewed the world was so inclusive it wasn't homogeneous by any you know any stretch of the imagination but it was so inclusive that it, it actually does make me sad my dad and I have talked about this a little bit about how instead of differences being celebrated, now they're now divisions. You know, they're now like lines in sand. Okay, mm. you're a man, I'm a woman. You know, you're straight, I'm gay. You're Catholic, I'm Jewish. You know, whatever, and, and there's all of these lines and we keep drawing, because, you know, we want to feel like we belong. I think that's just part of the human DNA, right, is we want to belong. And so if we can find something that we belong to, um, then it, it's it just, I, I just think that that's something that is inherently human or, or mammalian. Um, but then to take it to, oh, well then, but because you're not me, you're the opposition. Ironically enough, after the planning commission yesterday, I was, I was told that I'm on the other side and I'm like, I didn't realize there were sides, you know, it, it's just, it's anyways. And, and especially just my own, I mean, not to get too deep into religion, but my own spiritual beliefs are one of just such inclusion that it's just like, it's. I wish people were more inclusive. Mm. I mean, that's the nutty thing. I feel like if we get to the heart of any religion, it's sort of the basis of it is inclusion. It's that, you know, this this creator made all the people on earth. Like when, when you get to the foundational stories of all religion, the, the true story is that we all come from the same origins. Um, but yeah, we... The we can, only thing that's real is love. Yeah. I, I agree you know, with you. I mean, I think that that, you know, again, all religion, I'm going to, uh, I mean, completely oversimplify every single religion and just say, listen, it's all about love. Yeah. That should be the, the, the summary of every religion. And yet we're waging war all over the planet against our own species because of our own differences and how we use the word love. What what happened in the planning commission that you got called the the opposition or oh, the other I, side? No, no, it wasn't anything specific. It was um, it, it wasn't like any vote that happened or anything like that. It, it just happens to be because I used to be the gad, mm. right? Like people, like I mean, I was in the political sphere before I became you know the gad, and and then having you know this job. It's one with which you have to take positions. You know, it's one with which you have to um, espouse a certain viewpoint. And so it was more like, and, and, and even though I haven't been in this job for over a year now, is I think that 
people still haven't let that go, mm. right? Where there's certain positions, and I'll even, I've, I've admitted this before, there were certain positions that, and I think that you may have come across this as well, where I have to take this position as my job Yeah, that isn't necessarily my own, right? Like I may not necessarily, like if I had to go testify or go talk to a council member about this particular item, if I did it as Lawrence, I wouldn't say the same thing as if I'm doing it wearing my government affairs hat. And so I think it's really difficult for people to see you take hats off and put different hats on. Um, I take a tremendous amount of pride in being as objective as I can as a planning commissioner. Um, and one of the things that I value most in people is original thought. Mm. I love original thought. I love to just have conversation with people to where they, they think about something and they you know, they're contemplative and then they come up with, oh, this is how I view it. To me, it is boring. It is boring if I already know what you're going to say. If you have a position, if you take a stance and if you're just going to tell me what Rush Limbaugh is going to say or if you're just going to tell me what Rachel Maddow is going to say, I'm bored. I don't, I don't need to hear that. You know, it's like I, you know, that. So anyways, I'm giving this very long answer to, you know, these two people standing out front and I walk outside and I know both of them. I'm like, hey, and like, oh, we were just talking about you and then and it's like, oh, well, you're on the other side. And I was just like, well, I didn't realize there was a side that yeah. I was on. So, um, so it's, I, I just think in, in the world today is, is again, going back to the, it's, it's um, if I feel like the victim, then there has to be a victimizer. And, and if there has to be a victimizer, then you have to go look for one. You have to find one. And um, being someone that has to, as a, as a planning commissioner, being someone that actually has to make a vote. Mm. Ha you know, part of the room's gonna leave happy and part of the room's gonna leave sad, no matter what you do, most of the time. And so then it's just easy to have a target. And yeah. so I, it's, I don't always practice this, but when I, and I told those two people, um, that we're talking yesterday, I says, you know, what other people think of me is none of my business. Now that's, that's easier. That's easier <laughs> said than it is to subscribe to, but I try to hold that. I think that's a healthy way to go about it, and that's the the best way to go about it because really you're only in control of you, um, mm -hmm. and and you're the only one that's ultimately going to be accountable for you. You you can't blame other people for the decisions that you make right. or, or anything like that, and you can't control how they they think about right. you. Um, I, I oftentimes go back to this idea of sort of minding my own conscience, mm. where, where regardless of how people think I, I should come out on a, on a certain issue, it really needs to jive with me ethically in mm. order for, for me to appropriately state it. Um, and, and I do think that affects me as, as Gad a little bit, um, because I... I don't think you ever made a bad faith argument. I'm not, uh, and I'm not saying that, that I would make a bad faith argument. What I'm saying is I don't, I don't feel as though I, I've ever had to tilt into that area of making an argument that, that's in bad faith or that I don't believe in. Um, because usually with, with the positions that like RAM has and, and NAR has, um, you can see the, the ethics mm -hmm. you know, with, with all of it. Like, like there's, there's pretty logical um, arguments that, that are set out for us, for, for some of the stuff that we might not necessarily personally agree with. Right. Um, 
but man, people get pigeonholed so easily. Like right. when we were at the attainable housing conference mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. that guy, that guy said, oh, I'm surprised to see the conservative gentleman from Ram talking about <laughs> increasing wages. And it's like, man, I've been, I've been up here for like 40 minutes spouting some, some straight up Bernie Sanders ideas. And you're still calling me the conservative gentleman from Ram. And some, right. of, some of my views, yeah, they are going to be a little bit conservative. Um, but, but people just, once they get it in your, in their head, you know, you work for so-and-so, you believe in this, no matter what you say, even if you explain your thought process and your beliefs, some people just aren't going to get swayed. No. And I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I, I think that that is important. Um, life is gray. Mm. Like, you know, it's just like, it, there isn't a black and white. So maybe there is this position. And one of the things that I think you and I've talked about this as far as a GAD and, and when, when one is lobbying, I think one of the most effective tools that you can have is to understand all sides of the argument. Absolutely. Right? And even like, so, and, and again, original thought. You know, I mean, that's one of the things that I, I do enjoy about you. You bring, you, you, okay, have you thought this? I don't, like a lot of times, I don't care if you agree with me or not, mm. but did you, did you assess the situation and just come to a conclusion that's yours, not just positioned? And so that's the, the other thing, like say with RAM, where there are times, let's say like, oh, maybe I took a, a position that wasn't my own. I, I think you're right. That takes a little bit deeper clarification in that because life is gray, is oftentimes I sit down with a council member and I would be able to say, okay, here's the position we are taking and the reason why, okay, and here's what the other side's gonna say and the reason why they're gonna say that and this is why we are going to come from that and da 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 and, it, and, it, and it's not oh, dogmatic, mm. it's just, no, here's the rationale with which we came to this conclusion um, and yet understanding that it's not an absolute, yeah. It's just a viewpoint. Well, I think what a lot of people don't realize, and it goes with government affairs, but it really goes with everything. There's rarely one right way to do anything. Oh, exactly. Um, you know, like doing the right thing, that would be so much easier if there was one right thing to do. <laughs> but there, there's rarely ever an instance. I was talking to Mike Williams uh, the other day about mm -hmm. something, and he had he had suggested for commercial properties, commercial industrial properties, that you link the tax rate based on the income mm -hmm. of the property. Sure. Um, and I- Sounds like something Mike would say. Yeah, and, and I get that it's done in other jurisdictions and I, I, I get the appeal of it and that, that it is workable. Um, and I told him, you know, I just my gut reaction is to disagree with you because I think somebody with very limited experience or knowledge is going to look at this model and say, this is a great idea. Why don't we do this with residential? Why don't we do this mm. with apartment? Why don't we look at everybody's income and see sure. what they can pay? And then we'll, we'll match the, the property tax accordingly. Um, and, and it's that slippery slope thing. And, and he said, well, you know, I think you're, you're, you're misinformed. And he, he outlined all these arguments for me. And I said, you know, this was my initial thought. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, Mike, I, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world if somebody agrees with you and your your well-researched position over me and my initial thoughts, you know. But but right. as as ideas develop and as as people who might disagree work together, then you get a better product in the end for everybody. Jason, even the people that we adamantly disagree with, we probably only disagree on like 
11% of stuff. Oh, like, yeah. 89% of stuff we agree with, but like in today's society, we want to focus on that 11% that we disagree on, you know? It's, and, and these are the people that are on two radical sides of an argument. Um, you know, you kind of touched on something that I think is also a big piece of this, and that is, especially when we start talking policy, right? And government affairs type stuff. I'm a big proponent of make the decision with eyes wide open. Mm. Meaning, okay, if we're going to, and I don't know why the word perpetuity just pops into my head, right? Like, okay, if we're going to make affordable housing in perpetuity, I really, like, it's okay, that's fine. As long as we go into it with eyes wide open and go, guess what? There are consequences to that. There's blowback to that. Some of it intended, some of it unintended. Now, if we're going to just go, la, 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 no, there's nothing bad about it. It's just all good. We need perpetuity, and we just hit the throttle on perpetuity without looking. Well, what is in the wake of that? And if we go, okay, here's the blowback to it, and it's this and this and this and this, and we don't need to get into that conversation right now, or unless you want to, but I think as long as we go like, yeah, here's the, the bad side of perpetuity, or whatever conversation it is, and I'm still going to make that decision, then I'm like, cool. Yeah. I'm awesome. And rarely anymore do we see policymakers doing that, saying, here's the bad part of my argument. Here's the downside. Here is the weakness in me taking this position. However, this is the strong part of it, and this is the reason why I am, and I think that this overrides that, and that's why I'm coming to my conclusion. Again, that's original thought. It's being contemplative. It's, it's being for something, not just against something. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I just, I wish that we had more policymakers that, that if they do it, then it, it, they would just express it. And if they don't do it, then they would start doing it. I think that's, man, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I'm much rather a well thought out decision I disagree with than a Amen. poorly, poorly thought out decision that I can agree with. Um, just right. because... Because it's boring. There's, there's the boring aspect of it. <laughs> but it's also, I want the person making the decision to have really thought about the consequences, like you said. Yeah. Um, everything is going to have consequences. Everything is going to have unintended right. consequences. There's, there's rarely a perfect plan. Um, so, so, yeah, be honest with us. If, if you're going to make right. a decision that's going to have a negative side, like, be honest. But I think one of the big issues is we are living in a time of increased public scrutiny and increased activism. And I think that's great in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And I think it's well-deserved in a lot of ways because clearly political corruption is, is a major issue. Right. But it also erodes the intent of the system, which is we have a representative form of government. Yep, we exactly. do not have a direct democracy. We're getting, that's where we're headed though. That's, and that's that, the that's the That's the trajectory that we're on right now. Cause that was exactly, anyways, I'm interrupting you. But no, but what I'm saying is, is we, we, we're supposed to have this representative form of government where we get the people that we trust in office and, and they make the decisions because they have the time to invest in the problems and the issues and the decision-making process. But because those people abused a lot of trust, um, historically, political figures have abused so much trust, that now 
everybody wants to be involved in every decision, but they don't have the time or, or even the ability to analyze a lot of these ideas. So everything has to be boiled down to sound bites and tweets mm -hmm. and quotes and newspaper articles. And that is a terrible way to, to go about policy making because that's where you get into the issue of, well, if, if your opponent can identify one or two problem areas, then they'll just use those in, in media and in, in mm. social media and commercials and whatnot, and they'll use that to hammer away at your position. And, and folks in our profession are, are particularly guilty of this because you know, sure. we know how the, the system works. But man, it would be fantastic if we could go back to a representative form of government with, with well-intentioned and, and capable people making decisions that are based on hours of research and years of experience. Yeah, don't get me started. Well, at some point in time, we got to talk about the Dunning Kruger effect. Mm. Um, but but to stay on your on your thread of of representative government versus direct democracy um, is you you made me think of something that I thought is is you know representative government takes a couple of things. It takes trust and a lack of fear, which mm. is kind of the same thing. Um, and right now, there's a lot of people that are fearful, and they don't have a lot of trust. Um, and so there's like, you know, the, the sky is always falling, right? There's always this thing on the horizon that they're worried about, whether it's climate change, whether it's beach erosion, whether it's, you know, we're going to turn into Honolulu and, and overgrow. And, and so there's a lot of this. And, and so then there's this mistrust, which I think a lot of it is, is very valid. But the part that you just said that made me, it pinged on me for something is because of social media's impact in this current age, our representative government has kind of shifted to social media influencers. Yeah. Right? So suddenly people that, that pride themselves in being community organizers and actually have been trained to be community organizers and are trained how to use social media in a manner with which can mobilize people. And that has a lot of positive things, but it's interesting because it's almost like that now becomes our representative government, is it's not the policymakers. Because, and you and I, we, I could give you names of people specifically here on Maui that are really good at that. They're yeah. really good at influencing policy. So now in a way, that person X in social media has actually more power than the than the manner than than the nine people on the eighth floor, because a lot of the uh, I'm going to say, uh, do I say a majority? Yeah, I'm going to say majority of our council members currently vote with whoever the majority is, whoever they perceive to be the majority. Now, if that's all we're going to do, then I don't need a representative government. If all you're going to do is take a poll, yeah then why did I hire you to be a council member and or, you know, a representative or a senator or whoever it is? So um, it's, it's actually really interesting to wind that back and going, our representative government is actually now our social media influencers. That's what it seems like a lot. I mean, if, yeah. you, if you consider Trump and AOC, you know, the two prominent figures on either side, and even with Bernie. And well, think about it. And Trump is ruling the world from Twitter. Yeah. From what, it used to be, what, 144, it's 288 characters. He's ruling the world 288 characters at a time. It's crazy. That's how policy announcements are coming out. It's nuts. Everything. Why do I, I don't need to do a press conference and answer questions. I can just 
tweet at two o'clock in the morning. I don't know why I'm up at two or three o'clock in the morning, but I can just throw a tweet out. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's it's disturbing. Um, God, that that's the thing that was so frustrating to me about that injection well uh, issue. Uh oh, we're gonna go and down that one. <laughs> we we don't have to go down it. We, I don't want to get into to the details of that one. But what was so disturbing to me was that there were a lot of bad faith arguments being made. Um, and yeah, I know I know some people pointed out potentially bad faith arguments that might have been coming out of the mayor's office as far as some of the costs, but those things can be backed up by, by experts in the field giving you, you quotes on stuff. Um, the, the thing that was upsetting me was like with, um, with the Sierra Club and, and the, the stuff that they were putting out. I mean, you'd have thunk that, that there wasn't even a legal case, that courts weren't involved at all, other than you know, Trump's Supreme Court. You know, they didn't give any history as far as what went on in the case, what the actual issue was, you know, how boring it was as far as like, the technicalities of permitting and how it mm. would affect um, just administration of things. All of these really important issues that, that are at the heart of, of the, the big issue. Uh, all of that is ignored and it just gets summed up to, well, craft brewers want to save the reef and the mayor's siding with the Republican Party, which wasn't really accurate either. No, but, but that's the part, see, that's the, the, the interesting part to me. The details of the argument, okay, is it about permitting? Is it about, you know, this? But as I'm actually, and part of the reason why I'm sort of a political wonk and I geek out on this stuff, is I'm more curious about the chess game, mm. right? Politics is three-dimensional chess that is, you know, and, and I'm assuming you're a chess player just because you're really smart is, uh, or you just, I don't know why you seem like a chess player, maybe because you wear glasses, I don't know, whatever it is. But is three, this three-dimensional chess game that's happening not in linear time. Mm. And so I'm fascinated by all the moves that are constantly happening. And... If I'm the, you know, on, let's say if I'm the Sierra Club, I'm doing the same thing. If what I'm trying to do is win, I don't need to have, like, I, I, James Kimo Stone from Honolulu, right, who worked with Senator Akaka, and he's played in the NFL. He's been, played big boy politics, right? I remember I was really frustrated when I was early in the GAD, and I was like, really frustrated. He laughed, and he just goes, Lawrence, you're trying to insert logic into politics. <laughs> and I'll never, obviously, I've never forgotten that. So in a way, you're doing the same thing with this, the, the, the injection well thing. It's like going, but it just wasn't solid. Da, 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 da. But if I'm the Sierra Club, I'm, all I'm doing is you're killing the reef. Yeah. That's it. I don't need another message. It is three words. You're killing, oh, four words. You're killing the reef. That's it. Or reef's dying. I don't, you know, I don't need another argument. It's just like, I win. Yeah. It's, it goes back to kind of when, you know, we've talked about um, when the teachers union was trying to, um, get real property taxes raised, when, and that's when I was GAD, right? And I sat in the initial meeting. It was three of us. It was, you know, Peter, Ken, and I were sitting there, and, and I just go, guys, if this is teachers versus realtors, we lose. Yeah. Period. But I don't care what the argument is about whatever. It could be about real estate, but if it's teachers versus realtors, we lose. So going back to the arguments of, of I just find it positioning, right? And, mm. and you have to understand, okay, it is going to be a tweet, or it's a meme now, not even a tweet. Yeah. A, they had a great they had picture. They a great picture. Great picture of a live reef and a dead reef, which weren't even the same reef. It wasn't even in the injection well, but it was a very effective meme. It was 
awesome. Yeah, they had some some really great images that they used. Another one was like a lady that was in the fetal position on the beach, and it looked like she was. She was <laughs> it was it was beautiful, and even just they picked some of the the like Republican states that filed mm. Amakai briefs, and they put it with you know red letters and a black background, oh, and perfect. then like you know blue letters with the white background, like craft brewers and the Sierra Club and stuff like that. It was they did a great job as far as their marketing oh, material. Nailed it. Um, Nailed they, it. You got to give them credit for that. And, and it's interesting that you say the... Um... Oh, and they're still beating the drum, too. Like, Oh, yeah. You know, and, and pulling out all the stops. You know, I mean, it's just like, okay, we're going to try this or try to that. And now, in my opinion, it's not even... And again, in the three-dimensional chess game that is non-linear and ha is not really in real time, this is now about the mayoral race in 2022. Oh, it's, yeah. This isn't even about injection wells anymore. It's gone from injection wells to positioning how can I throw darts at either on either side at the other side when you know I'm running against so and so that that's this is now about positioning for that yeah I mean even you you brought up the three-dimensional chess thing and, and the positioning with the injection well case a great example is the charter crisis you know that we're going mm. through right now and they're, they're they came oh, up with sure. term, charter crisis charter crisis and um when when corporation <clears throat> council had said you know we don't actually we're not sure if you have the authority to settle and then there was this big hullabaloo well why didn't you mention this earlier i i remember having meetings before mike molina brought it into committee mm. and saying you know saying my piece and then at the end saying and by the way I don't even think the county council has the authority to argue this. Right. And and I remember um, speaking with county attorneys uh, before it even it might have gone to committee once, but it hadn't gone back to committee. And and they were saying, yeah, you know, we're still really questioning whether the county council should even be voting on this, whether they have the authority to settle or not. So it it was so. Um, this is this charter crisis didn't pop up suddenly. Right. Everybody's been seeing it coming for months, and and they've they've kept that issue on the back burner because for the mayor it behooved him if the county voted one way and and that was that. And it, it's all just um, it's political theater. Um, uh, amen. That is exactly what it is. And and how can you turn a smart arc? Because you're sometimes you know it's like you can be too smart mm. because to say like. To make the argument, well, based on a charter ruling, it's not sexy. No. It is not sexy. There's nothing sexy about going to the charter and saying, well, you don't actually have the authority to do this. And then so therefore, it's like, no, the reefs are dying. We have to. You know, it, it's it's so. And then when we lose, it's like, oh, now we can pull it. I mean, they, they've done a masterful job of then doubling down and capitalizing on the thing that was actually against them, which they ignored when it was against them, and now they're trying to use it. You know, it'll be interesting, too, because if I'm, you know, say, the whatever happens at the Supreme Court, both sides are going to claim victory. Yeah. Right? Like, the, the, well, the only way if the, is because what they'll do is they'll say, okay, if, you, if you're on the side that doesn't want to go to the Supreme Court, and you lose at the Supreme Court, you're going to say, like, oh, see, Trump's, you know, see, we told you so. Yeah. If they win at the Supreme Court, then they're going to say, I told you so. You know, and then the side that wants to go to the Supreme Court is going to say, see, we got clarity. Yeah. Right. So, so it's like no matter what happens, both sides are going to claim victory. It's who can do it better. That's all it's going to come down to is 
who can claim victory better than the other side? Um, the people that are do not want to go to the Supreme Court are using emotion. The people that do want to go to the Supreme Court are using logic. Emotion is going to win out over logic. Is there a way with which, because people, you know, people don't show up to the chambers and give an impassioned speech and testimony because it makes sense. It's no, because it's coming from their heart. It's coming from their belly. They're like, no, you're killing. The GMO thing is what started this whole thing on Maui. You're killing my kids. Mm. But if you ask all the voters, if you polled everybody in Maui County and asked them how they want their policymakers to decide issues, whether they want those decisions based on logic or whether they want those decisions based on emotion and public sentiment, I think the, the responses would overwhelmingly say, well, I want them deciding on logic. But you're absolutely right. When it comes to practice, it really is agree with me while I'm here holding this sign or else. Well, but that's also the art of this gray area, right? Mm. The art of politics and political theater. Because if what gets me to hold the sign is you're killing my baby, I can back into the logic any way I want to or need to. Yeah. Right? So then I can just be like, I'll see, you know, my yoga instructor's, you know, uh, acupuncturist told me, you know, whatever it would be, you know, and, and, and so it can, it, it can just be, I, I mean, I'm just sort of making up whatever, but it's just, it, it, that is, I think, a piece of it is I can back into the logic if, if I'm invested. It's hard to get invested logically. It's much easier to get invested emotionally. Yeah. I, I think you're right about that. Um, but boy, oh boy, is it frustrating being sort of a logically minded person in a, uh, in a field that, that is often um, <laughs> just filled with emotional, emotional people who are not afraid to, to heckle you. Did you get heckled as Gad? Um, not directly like that. But see, I, you know, and I've told you, Jason, you're, I thought that you were sort of the star of the, um, that injection well thing. And you took, I don't, I didn't really have in my tenure, I don't think, I'm trying to think back if I had anything that controversial that I had to take a stance on. Um, like one, like one of my big, like I hang my hat on one of my big, I guess at the time victories, and I'm using air quotes, was, um, you know, Ram wanted to take a position on county manager. And there was a huge group of f folks that were, you know, in fifth gear, full throttle, we're getting county manager. And through the help of others, we were able to do that. And I remember the last time I was at the podium and, and kind of making that final thing, which I felt kind of tipped it. Um, but, you know, but it was a bunch of gray haired people in, in the audience. It wasn't moms with babies, you know, and, you know, it was it was it was almost like logic versus logic, I yeah. guess. So so I don't think I had any emotion versus logic big heavy things you know like you faced you know over the summer yeah that's fine that's good. you did great <laughs> i thought you did fantastic i thought you did absolutely fantastic so you let's did. get back to lawrence let's okay. get back <laughs> okay. um now you mentioned that you're yeah, gonna have to so you're gonna have to do a podcast 
where somebody turns it around and asks you all these questions. We actually have that plan. My, my oh, okay. wife is planning on, on interviewing me. Yeah. Ooh, that'll be a good one. Yeah, Michelle McLean had recommended that we, we do a podcast where she was like, can I interview you? And, and she's yeah. just super busy. So, but I was thinking my wife knows me better than anybody, so she'll be able to get the, the really good... <laughs> meaty questions <laughs> and uh, probably you're just, you'll edit it later and take out all the stuff embarrass me somehow <laughs> um, you know it'll it'll be it'll be difficult not to answer things jokingly um, with, with her but. but but if that's your relationship with her if your relationship is one that is just fun and joking then it should be that I mean that should be you know I mean let your personality come out I mean okay. well, no no I mean Life's too short to be serious all the time. The worst is if we start using like pet names with each other, and then just all my listeners just give up. Yeah, start, that, that that could get a little awkward. Vomiting. That could get <laughs> a little awkward. Yeah. So you mentioned that your mom was head of the PTA. Okay. Were were your parents really involved, uh, engaged in the community civically or hugely, hugely? Yeah. Um. In 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 both in their own way. I mean, obviously, because my dad was the, you know, the nine to five guy. Um. But I, it's funny now that I think about that, kind of mainly through the church. Okay. Um, like our church growing up had this huge, huge fair once a year. Um, I mean, like basically it was the big fundraiser for the church. And I want to say my parents headed that up for like a decade. Um, they did that. You know, my mom. Yeah, they, they, they're both pretty engaged. I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, really more in the local community, but not like say you and I are out, you know, like public policy or yeah. anything like that, but more just like, yeah, our little neighborhood and everything. Yeah. Everybody knew who the Carnicellis were. Is that kind of where you got it from? Probably. You think so? You know, but I, I, I remember I was in seventh grade, something like that. And my PE teacher, I remember like one day I was in PE or it was recess or whatever it was. And I'm sitting there talking to him. And I'm not playing with my friends. I'm sitting there talking to him. You know, like, I don't know, for whatever reason. And he looked at me. He just goes, you know, one day you're going to replace Mo, Mo Udall in the Senate. And Mo Udall was the senator from Arizona at the time. And I didn't get, like, who's this adult telling this, I don't know, 12-year-old that he's going to be, you know, replace Mo Udall? So I guess I had something in my DNA that I'm either, you know, have that political gene or maybe that was just his way of telling me I'm full of shit. <laughs> What, what did you want to <laughs> Which be? I think is probably the later. This probably. That's how that's how I was as a teacher. And be like, you're gonna make a great politician someday. <laughs> <laughs> the kiss of death. Don't call me that. No. What, but what did you want to be when you were a kid? <laughs> when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a garbage man. Price I thought I thought that it was the coolest thing that they got to ride on the outside of the car. <laughs> They got to stand on them. Like, this is back when you, know, you went down the alley and they threw the cans, you know, like into the thing. And I thought it was the coolest thing that they got to stand on the outside and just hold on and just ride down the street. I was just like, I want to be a garbage man. And my mom just, oh, she mortified her. <laughs> mortified her. She's like, no, you need to be something. I'm like, no, I want to be a garbage man. And of course, the more she said I didn't want to be, then the more I wanted to be. So, yeah. Of course. So I think was... getting into politics, maybe that, maybe it did come true. <laughs> Did you, at what age did you, did you think that you wanted to get involved in politics? Mm. Or was that a later in life sort of thing? You know what, I, I'll answer that question kind of in a roundabout way, which is very me to do. Um, I was having lunch with a friend yesterday, 
and it was sort of the conversation around, are you going to get into politics? Are you going to run for office? People ask me all the time, are you going to run for office? And here's my broad-based answer is, doing that job actually intrigues me. Mm. To sit there and affect public policy, to uh, impact your community in what you feel is a right way. And again, like we were talking about earlier in the conversation about like thoughtful discussion and decision making, like that intrigues me. I'm not saying I want to do it, but it intrigues me. But doing what it takes to get that job has zero appeal to me. Yeah. To go to baby luau's and, you know, church blessings and, you know, fundraising events and having to talk to some random stranger in Costco for 45 minutes when I just want to pay for my stuff and go home. Like that has zero appeal to me, yeah. you know, like to, to do those things that you quote unquote have to do. And I'm not saying I don't want to talk to that person, but I'm just saying, but if I have, have to do it because I feel like I need their vote. I, 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 that has no appeal to me. So if I then back into the question that you asked me, like, did I want to join politics? I've always been an opinionated a-hole. Um, like even I think back at like, you know, student council or whatever it is. I remember engaging student council and like having an opinion about certain things that they're doing, but I never wanted to run for student council. <laughs> Like I didn't want, contest. I didn't want the popularity contest, right? I'm just like, okay, you know, Brooke Bennett is, you know, he's better looking and he's more popular and he's just going to be class president because everybody loves Brooke Bennett. And you're like, okay, fine. You know, whatever. That's cool. I don't really care. And actually it wasn't even Brooke Bennett or whoever it was, David Eaton. That's who it was. Um, but yeah, anyways, that's so, I, I never, again, it intrigues me, but then when I think about what it would do to my family as well, having a three-year-old kid, Oof. Um, is I'm gone enough at night now just in doing some of the stuff that I do and, and I wouldn't want to put them through that. Yeah. Honestly, I am. Um, being in this world, you get that question. Like people are going to ask, right. you, are you going to run for office? Are you interested in running for office? Right, and, right. And whatnot. And I think about um, like Yuki's talking story thing that she does on, on Saturday mornings where, where mm -hmm. she goes to oh, right. upcountry farmer's market. Right. And um, I think about my own Saturday mornings, how lazy I am and how I like to just <laughs> sit and drink coffee. And I, I think, man, I, can, I could never run for office. I'd have to get up and go to farmer's market. And, and you know, stuff. Yuki's like the epitome of that, right? She goes to everything. She's great at the public outreach, yeah. I mean, she, she is everywhere, everything, like even... Yeah, she she goes so she's like the epitome of that. Yeah. Where then then you have someone like Ricky who just is like Ricky's going like I've been doing this for seventy years or whatever. Is just like going he doesn't want to go to any of that stuff. Um, but like I, I you know growing up in Arizona, it was Barry Goldwater State. Like mm. and I don't know if you're even old enough to remember Barry Goldwater, but I remember specifically there was this one because he was the chair of the defense committee for the senate or something like that like he had like one of the most powerful positions in dc and i remember it was something to do with the military and he walks out of this and i'm watching on tv and he's walking out and cameras everywhere and like senator senator can you tell us about that and he's like ah oh, you know i can't talk about that right now you know top secret where blah 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 and they keep asking him, like, basically the same question, trying to solicit anything. And all of a sudden he turns and he goes, God damn it, I told you I can't talk about it. And, okay, this is, like, 70s. Yeah. And the fact that he said, God damn it, was like, ooh, it was a big deal. But I loved it. 
I'm like, I'm a kid. And I thought like, now I wish politicians could be like that. Just be, cause he, I mean, it was very like my, my grandfather, you know, my grandpa, my grandpa Sterling, we called him grandpa Stir, which he was <laughs> like that. So it was like, yeah, just call it straight, man. You wish politicians did that more. Just, you know, when you're mad, just be mad, be human. I do. I, I mean, and maybe that's the, the benefit of the rise of the social influencer as, as politician, is that there's, mm. there's less of a filter because everything that they're doing is, is being broadcast mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and the rise of media. But, you know, it, it's still, what upsets me about that is, is the influence of public opinion can be so negative, where, where if you get somebody like Barry Goldwater, Goldwater saying, you know, God damn it. Um, that was so horrendous and, and people were able to latch on to that but you know you have our, our current president saying any sort of crazy thing and right and enough people are, are swayed by the personality alone that that they'll forgive it and and if you can reach that that maximum capacity of, of supporters then um, then golly but like at, at more of a local level it is interesting that you say that Jason because there's there's this you know, the call out culture that we live in, right? It's just like you, in the social media world, you get points, and I'm using air quotes, points for calling somebody out, right? Like it, it, it used to be, okay, if my teacher yelled at me or something like that, I went home and my mom and dad would be like, oh, what did you do? And now it's like, oh, you posted on social media and everybody rallies and then suddenly the whole community is going to the principal to talk to the teacher and you get bonus points or credit because you're the one that called out the teacher. Um, you know, in, in our political world, I think there, there's a lot of that same thing where there's this call out culture. But I read a fantastic article, I think it was New York, uh, Wall Street Journal article about the call out culture and that eventually everyone gets cannibalized. Yeah. If you're a call out culture person eventually you are going to get eaten as well and we've seen a couple local influencers that that has happened to or is happening to in the current states which i also find really fascinating to be like okay um you know okay you're gonna bang on everybody and you're gonna be like oh yeah 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 like you know okay i'm gonna call out barry goldwater and you should and blah 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 blah, blah and then suddenly we'll you know, don't throw stones if you live in a glass house and we all live in a glass house, right? So especially if you're going to live in that social media world where you're putting your own life on display and how wonderful you are, because that's of course what we do in social media, but yet you want to attack others, you know, everybody's getting, it, is it, yeah, there's, a, there's a huge amount of cannibalism to it. Do you use social media? I have, let's see, I have a Twitter account, which I haven't even opened in, I don't know, years. Yeah. Um, I have an Instagram account, which again, same thing, haven't used in years. I do have a, a Facebook account. I very rarely post anything. If I do, it's probably about my kid. Um, and I, it, it just, it doesn't feel good to even go there. Yeah. Um, I use it mainly, I use Facebook mainly as a news aggregate, you know, is, is I can get news and particularly local news in one place, mm. um, which I think, you know, Zuckerberg loves, right? That's what he wants is me to be able to go there as my source. I just find it to be easier um, to get local stuff. As soon as I scroll, like it just, I, I just, it, it's, I just don't feel good. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I hate to say it. I mean, I'll say that is when I left this job, there was a whole slew of people that I unfriended. 
um, because it was just like, I don't want this in my world. But I, I was friends with them because of this job. And even if it was just to see what they were up to yeah, um, or to, you know, whatever it would be. Um, but yeah, social media is, um, it's not good. And the other part too is a big piece for me is, you know, the Gandhi quote, be the change you want to see in the world. Um, so if I'm on my phone all the time, then I'm teaching my daughter that that's the thing that I want her to do. Mm. So I just, it's just like, how much do I want my daughter to be on social media? I want her to be on social media zero, none. I mean, obviously that's a decade away. Um, well, maybe not, but I mean, to me, it's like, okay, she's 13, 14. You know, I think they have the cognitive skills to start to maybe enter that world a little bit. Prior to that, all the data shows, absolutely not. Do you think um, that having a daughter, just a child, uh, changed your, your perspective, your political perspective at all and affected your, your advocacy or, or even your style? That's a great question. Um, I don't know if, if it affected my style. Um, you know, there was a while that I, I had a very libertarian bent. I, I was introduced to Ron Paul back in like 2007 and this whole libertarian thing and free market and all that. And I even had a radio talk show here on Maui called Take Liberty with Lawrence Carnicelli. And, but it, was, it wasn't like, it wasn't a political talk show that was just, okay, like most political talk shows are where I'm just going to spew out what I think and then get you to agree with me. I wanted actual conversation, but I was going to ask questions and I was going to come from this libertarian way. The, but what I realized is I got deeper and deeper and deeper into the f libertarianism and then trying to be real about going like, okay, what's the consequences intended or unintended to whatever position you take. I realized that one of the biggest flaws of pure capitalism is it lacks benevolence. Mm. And, and what would the world really look like if every single road I had to drive on was a toll road because it was privately owned and all these are, you know, where I'm just going like, okay, it, and it didn't really work. And you ask me, okay, why, what does that have to do with being a father? The thing that was really interesting, though, is as I pulled out of like, just that belief of libertarianism um, and really saw a better, you know, more of a balance between, say, capitalism and socialism, becoming a father, and especially as, as I'm in, in kind of a traditional type relationship where my wife stays home, she, she takes care of my daughter, we don't put her to daycare, uh, we're going to homeschool, and I go off and, you know, go to work. I have the easy job when I leave and go to work and make money and pay the bills. In that traditional relationship, I see how yin and yang works. Mm. Like, like yin and yang is just brilliant to say like, okay, you know, the, the, the circle isn't cut in half. There's a wavy line. There's parts of, of you know, me being a father that I have certain roles and I look at my daughter in a way with which my wife just can't and doesn't. And that's true the other way. Like there's ways with which a mother operates with which I cannot understand. Like she's plugged into my daughter in a way that a mother, only a mother can understand. So how does that then go back to my views is, is it made me kind of almost appreciate or not go back to pure libertarianism, but also understand that conservatives kind of look at the world like dad, and liberals kind of look at the world like mom yeah. to oversimplify it, right? Where it's, liberals are saying, mommy's going to take care of you. I'm going to fix your scraped knee. I'm going to nurture you. I'm going to care for you. And 
dad, the conservatives are saying, pick your ass up and get out there and, you know, rub a little dirt on it and get back in there. Right. You know, and so like there is this sort of balance that I, I don't necessarily have to be both. Um, I, I mean, I think inside I am, we're all yin and yang. But so there's this way with which having a daughter has made me, in a way, maybe going full circle back to talk, us talking about our fathers, is embracing the fact that it's okay for me to be masculine. It's okay for me to be the father to my daughter and not feel like, okay, I have to demasculate myself because I have a daughter. It's like, no, the more I can be a man and be her father, the more I allow my wife to be a woman and to be a mother, mm. right? Rather than us trying to both be all of it, it's just like, no, I can just embrace being a dad that sometimes just goes, you know what, tough shit. I don't care if you're laying on the floor throwing a three-year-old tantrum, get off the floor. And then, you know, she's going, mommy, hold, hold, hold. You know, my wife goes over and picks her up and holds her, you know? So it's just like, and, and neither one of them's right or wrong. It's just, but it, it's, so there's a way with which I think then going uh, very long answer to your question about politics and how it's affected me is I think that there is a way with which I think that has affected me in, in my views of the world is saying that, that it's, um, yeah, I guess it's okay to be me and I don't have to acquiesce in a way with which I think, I think might be right mm. or might even look right. Yeah. The acceptance of, um, you can be you can be wrong or or other people can have different ideas i i think that's that was a lot that was good that was a good answer that was and and don't worry about long answers this is a podcast and we can okay. just go as long as you want because that's fine it's my show you know the other the other piece of this that i think is part of my story that um i don't often solicit but you know you've kind of gotten into the the personal part of me and like and, and what affects me and not is um when my wife was seven months pregnant this is gonna be hard to talk about, but I'm gonna say it. When my wife was seven months pregnant, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And during those last three months, and then six months after, um, you know, I'm literally facing death. Yeah. Doing chemo treatments, radiation treatments, while my daughter is being born. And so to be facing life and death at the same exact time um, was pretty, I mean, in hindsight, it's fascinating. Um, but it's also colored my life in a way with which there is not literally not a day that goes by that I don't know or think about the fact that tomorrow is not promised to any of us. And, you know, so the little moments that I have with my daughter, like this morning, I'm doing my morning readings and she's sitting there eating breakfast and, and I just stopped and I just stared at her. And I just kind of took a little mental picture of my daughter eating breakfast in her, in her Elsa costume from, <laughs> from the movie Frozen. Of course. Um, you know, and it was, it was really cool. But I think that that's another piece of not just being a dad, but... Um, you know, uh, surviving that. And I don't, it's funny, I, don't, I never really use the word survivor because to me that the cancer part was like, I trusted that the treatment would kill the, would, would take care of the cancer. And my job was to survive the treatment. 
Mm. You know, like chemotherapy, my, my, how I framed it was, you know, chemotherapy brings you so close to death that the cancer can't survive. And so then your job is then recover. Like you can survive it, but the cancer can't. And so, um, and just coming out from that and, and, and even, um, so looking at that. So I think that that's another piece of it is just, you know, life is precious. Um, and so, and yet, you know, again, I, I, I don't know why I'm thinking about the two people that called me the other side the other day where it's just like, no, you know what? I, just, I may disagree with you, I just, but I look at life in just a different way. Um, and so that's another just piece that colors the hue with which I see the world is coming from that, um, that bent. And, and I think that had I gone through the treatments at a different stage in life, mm. you know, like, okay, just, okay, randomly, you know, when I was 27, I had to go through that. But it was really interesting, fascinating to me that, that and I'll use the word God, chose for me to go through that at that same time that my daughter was being born. And, and you know, my, my daughter was breech, me, she was upside down. And so um, we couldn't have a natural birth, we had to have a C-section. And we had to move the date of her birth because it fell on the same day as my final treatment. Wow. Um, so she would actually have been, made, been born May 22nd, she's born on May 15th um, because, because, because I had chemo. <laughs> and we were in the hospital and it was funny, like even when I, upstairs in the room with my wife and brand new daughter, wake up in the morning, walk downstairs, do my treatment, walk back upstairs into the room with my wife and daughter. So it was just like, it was a pretty, a pretty, I mean, in a way I think back at it, it's just like it was a pretty cool experience. I mean, it wasn't easy, but it was a pretty cool experience to go through. So you didn't discover that you had cancer until your wife was seven months pregnant. Right, is I had a big thing on the side of my neck and I just had, and I wouldn't have noticed it, but I had a cold and it's like, God, what? So I went to the doctor and, and she's just like, oh, oh, okay, you just had a cold, let's give you a round of antibiotics. And she's like, if it doesn't go away, then let's, you know, um, we'll, we'll take you in for further treatment. So I did the full round of antibiotics and I don't normally do antibiotics, but it's like, okay, didn't go away. So she's like, well, let's send you to an ENT, which is an ear, nose and throat doctor. Um, went to the ENT, uh, Dr. Scott Newman, um, brilliant guy. Anyway, so he looks around, pokes around, he's like, oh, you got some stuff in the back of your throat and your tonsils. So I'm going to biopsy that. Biopsy is the thing on the side of my neck. He called me at 6.30 on Friday afternoon, which he didn't have to, right? You could have waited till Monday. What? Anyways, he called me at 6.30 on Friday afternoon. Saturday, that next Saturday morning was our baby shower. Oh my God. So he calls me at 6.30 on Friday afternoon. Um, it's, you know, it's cancer, da, 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 da. Come see me first thing Monday morning. She's, he's like, I'm coming in early Monday morning. He's like, I want you to be my first payment. So it was like eight o'clock on Monday. He's like, we're not effing around with this thing. You know, come in right straight away. Let's, let's go. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so it was really interesting. I found out, not only that, I found out the night before the baby shower. <laughs> Which my, I mean, think, I actually think it was, you know, I had to go through the physical part of it, but I think the mental and emotional part was way more difficult on my wife. Oh, I bet. I mean, you're telling this story and all I'm thinking is your poor wife. Yeah. Like that must've been devastating she's, she's the hero. Yeah, well, yeah, to sit there and think like I, you know, cause we're both older parents, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, anyways, she, I'll put it this way, she's uh, not a spring chicken. I'm not gonna tell her how old she is. <laughs> but, um, you know, she's gone, I waited my whole life to have a kid. I finally have a kid and I might be a single mom, like right out the gate. 
like right out the gate, I might be a single mom. Um, you know, she's going to grow up without knowing her dad and that whole thing. So it's just like, yeah, really, when we talk about it, and we did recently, we did a couple of days ago, actually, we talked about it. Um, and uh, um, yeah, she, she, she can't talk about it without crying. Mm. And it's really interesting. I have a, I have a scar where the tube came out because I had to eat out of a tube for about six or seven months because I couldn't eat because of all the treatment in my mouth and stuff like that. As a matter of fact, there was about two months where I had to, I had to write on a pad of paper. I couldn't talk. And I was writing on a pad of paper um, to talk to my wife um, because all the stuff that, you know, is, because of the radiation and everything like that. So I had this little thing on, in my stomach where the, the tube came out and then because my wife had the C-section. So my daughter, you know, she's messing around with us and she'd be like, oh, that's where mommy, I was in mommy's belly and I came out of mommy's bellies. And so she looks at my wife's scar and then she points at mine and go like, oh, oh, when I was in mommy's belly, it's like you had, so like, <laughs> it's like this really <laughs> weird thing where like my scar is kind of in, in her mind at three years old is equivalent to my yeah. wife, my wife's scar. So in some way. My goodness. Does, does your wife ever miss the days when you couldn't talk? <laughs> I guarantee she does. I guarantee she does. Yes. And and you were still working at Ram while, while I, all this I was actually going on. I I basically just started. I remember when I actually got my interview. Um, when I had my because inter- um, I had my interview with Terry and May. Um, May was working there still, and Terry was still working there. Is I remember in my interview at one point in time, May. Because again, all this stuff is going on in my mouth. May left and went and got me a bottle of water, which I still have to have with me all the time. Um, and then towards the end of the interview, because I was having, because this was part of that time where I wasn't quite writing on the pad of paper, but I was still having a really hard time with my mouth. Um, she said, if you want, we can do this interview another time. Um, but interestingly enough, I think like the human psyche um, it was pretty fascinating to to really try to be as present as I could with what I was going through. I realized how strong the human need was to be normal. I did not want to be a cancer patient. I did not want to be a cancer survivor. I did not want to be in treatment. I I needed to feel normal. And so even just like the fact that you would accommodate me in that way would make me feel less than. And so I remember just instantly just going like, no, 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 we're finishing this, you know, as difficult as it was for me. Um, you know, one of, one of the stories my wife talks about is there was a point in time when my parent, right, right after my daughter was born, my parents came to visit. And, and this is where I was sleeping probably 20 hours a day or something like that, just really trying to recover. Um, and, uh, I wanted to make my bolognese sauce for my parents. It's like, I gotta make this bolognese. Like, you know, I just, I gotta do it. So I went to the store, my, my wife was furious. <laughs> went to the store, shopped for the stuff, came in and made my bolognese. I mean, it might've taken a couple of hours, three hours, something like that to make it. But then I had to like sleep for two days because it completely wiped me out. But I had to feel normal, right? Like my parents are in town, I have to cook, I have to make this for, and so it, that was another piece of it that's just really interesting. And, and I've had since then, a few different people um, that have referred their friends to me that have gone through like a similar thing and try to explain my experience um, with them. And, and I think that's one of the biggest pieces I think that you don't know going into um, the treatments is just 
the psychological, it's not just the physical, like, oh, I'm dealing with the physical part, but there's this other metaphysical part that's, that's pretty interesting. Did you always maintain hope throughout the, the treatment process, or, or were there times when you really, you just kind of thought that this was the end of Lawrence Carnicelli? That's a great question. I cannot, I can't recall ever thinking that I wouldn't survive. Like I, I, I just, it, it wasn't, it wasn't on the table for me. Again, it was just like that trust of, um, you know, the treatment's going to take care of the cancer. My job is to survive the treatment. Um, probably the shakiest it ever was, was early on when again, I, I had to feel normal. Um, I did, originally I, I wasn't going to do the feeding tube. I'm like, no, 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 I'm fine. I don't want to do the feeding tube. And they said, we are not starting. Cause they obviously all the doctors and nurses, they, they're like, no, you're, this is, you're not the first guy doing this. Yeah. We know it's coming. And they said, we are not going to start treatment until you do that. And I'm super glad that I did. Um, but there was one point in time where, um, I didn't want to use the tube again, wanting to be normal, but but my mouth was so messed up, I couldn't really eat. And in like a five day period, I lost like 12 pounds. And I remember the um, nurse practitioner looking at me dead in the eye. She just goes, if you don't start eating, you are going to die. You know, and she's like, and not about the cancer treatment, not about anything. She's like, no, you have to eat. You cannot do this. And like that was probably the most shaky. But so it wasn't really even about the cancer part. It was about the fact, okay, I had to submit to the fact that I'm not still normal. And, um, and I got to use the tube. Um, and then I kind of got, it's funny, at the end, I almost didn't want to give up the tube. <laughs> Ironically enough, it was because it just became so easy. It was probably the, it, it is easily the purest I've ever eaten because you just throw a bunch of stuff into a blender you blend it up, you take a syringe and you squirt it into this tube and you've just had probably the healthiest meal you've ever had. I don't care what it tastes like. I don't care what it, the texture of it or any of that. It was just like pure organic, totally, whatever, all the things that you would want to do. Um, and, but it was all about calories. I just, I had to try to get about 3000 calories a day. Um, so then you put in odd combinations together yeah. too, which didn't matter because it was just going straight in your stomach. Um, but yeah, so so then in a way it was just like it seemed like eating just became a chore. <laughs> but but at the other end of it, I remember when I lost eating though. But like because I love to eat so much, being Italian, right, yeah, or being Greek, right, exactly it's just like, like I, I love eating so much that losing eating. But I lost the taste and everything like that before. I, so it that wasn't as hard. But uh, and then and then even when I went from the tube to eating, you know, my mouth was so messed up you know, with, you know, no saliva really, which I didn't realize how big a part of that was to taste and flavor. Um, and then, you know, your taste buds and everything like that are so jammed up that it really didn't, there wasn't a whole lot of taste to things anyways. And because there was all that, I, I couldn't eat anything remotely spicy. Like even like black pepper was, Oh wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was like, like well, in a doctor friend of mine explained what the radiation was. He said, you know, imagine, going out into the sun and getting a really bad sunburn and then tomorrow you got to go stand out in the sun again and then the next day you got to go stand out in the sun again and then the next day you got to go stand out in the sun again and that's also why it take it took about probably six to nine months after the treatment was over to really start to feel normal 
because you know that you you got to heal from the sunburn. Like okay, the next day you don't go into the sun, but it's not like your sunburn goes away. Um, and so that's where in so anyways, three and a half years later, um, you don't you, they don't call you cured until you're five years out. So I'm three and a half years in. Um, but other than like I'm about probably fifty percent of the saliva that I originally had. Um, but I love food again. Now I got to watch what I eat. I'm not gaining weight again. Like, damn it. Give me, the, give me the stomach tube back. Yeah, tube. like there's times that that's appealing. Yes, there's definitely times that that's appealing. Have you ever seen the movie My Life with Michael Keaton? No. Oh my no, God. No, I need to do that one. If you want a cry, just okay. a really good cry, I think this movie will devastate you. Okay. Because this movie devastates me, and I've never had cancer. Mm. And, and what you described with your life story is largely Michael Keaton's story without the happy ending. Yeah, I'm sorry if I made this like like the last half hour has been this like heavy whatever. Oh, man, it doesn't matter. I told you, like five people listen to this thing. <laughs> Lynette is listening, and she's probably crying because, you know, Or she's mom. like, fast forward, can you stop talking about cancer, for God's sakes? But no, it's it's fine. I mean, that's why we we have the podcast. The the idea of like the show flow and that format of, of going back and, and right. you know going through your whole life. That's that's more of a suggestion. Though. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we might have to do this on a monthly basis. Just, <laughs> just have the, uh, the I want to interview the you as well. The gad business. Yeah, you can interview me. Um, we can we can have you do that. I actually might be having a show on Akaku. There's like talk about that. So if we do that, then I'll have you on that one. I would love to be on that. Yeah. I love Akaku. I love oh, yeah. low budget. Uh, <laughs> just oh public. yeah. I think it would be even better. Like is to just put your iPhone here in the middle of your office and like to do an Akaku show that way. That's actually a pretty fun idea. You know, you could actually do that because this is one of the things I love about Akaku, is they don't edit anything. And they don't not air anything. So if you send them a file, you know, a video or whatever it is, they now they may not air it over and over again. And it may be it aired at like three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, but they will that's part of like public access TV. They don't edit and they publish everything. And that's why like like when the G and, and I found that out during the GMO stuff. Um, because there was like, you know, it's just some there was some out there on both sides, out there, crazy, crazy videos that Akaku published. And like the pro-GMO guys accuse them of being anti-GMO. And they're going, no, we're just public access. Yeah. We're just, just, just do it. So anyways, I thought that that was pretty fascinating. That's actually a really fun idea. Yeah. We, we can make an Akaku show. Yeah. I wouldn't want to do it alone. I feel like. It's I'm harder. Gonna... It's hard. It's hard to to drive a show by yourself, you know, depending upon what it is. But I mean, like dialogue like this, I think podcasts are easier. But yeah, yeah. to do a show that you have an objective to is, is much harder to do solo. I, I much prefer audio than visual because audio, you could just wear whatever you want. And it's, well, <laughs> you can see what you're doing. Well, and that, and, and I think that there's, there's uh, theater of the mind. Yeah. You know, it, it's like if this was a video... Would Tim Stice be listening to this driving around in his truck? No. no he wouldn't. Um, or whoever it is that, you know, whoever the fifth person is that, that, <laughs> that listens to it. But it is, is so to me, um, there is something about the theater of the mind um, that, ought, that, that radio can create. I guarantee both of us are much better looking if you're listening to this, than if you're actually <laughs> I watching was, this. I was, I was told I have a face for radio. Yes. <laughs> That's what got me started as well. <laughs> now, 
how did you how did you maintain motivation and and even just competency in your your new job your brand new job as gad while you're you're also struggling you got a new family you're going through cancer um how oh i think i just um if it hasn't come through in the podcast so far i dig this stuff Mm. And I think that's also part of the reason why it shocked so many people when I left. Because um, I do. I enjoyed it. Um, I mean, part of it was just chop wood, carry water. You know, as they say, the Buddhists say, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Um, so life is really about just chop wood, carry water. Um, part of it is like, okay, you are brand new dad. Um, you got to provide. I think that there was, you know, some genetic... I am my father's son. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have to just do. Um, and then there was another part of it that was just, it was a new and interesting and fun challenge um, walking into it. And then, you know, then the other part of it is, I think that there was um, the responsibility. And not the responsibility to my family, but the responsibility to the association that had hired me. Um you know, I've been an athlete my entire life, um, collegiate athlete, the whole thing like that. And so like that whole being part of a team and mm. holding up your end of the stick and, and like showing up every day and doing your best is I think that that was another part of it. Because another piece of this job is it's very visual, right? Like, you know, some people can go to their cubicle and they can do an outstanding job every day. No one knows. Yeah. You know, this job as the GAD is you're out there in the world and so you it's it's really hard to mail it in yeah you know um so i think that that was just those different pieces of it that you know you just okay coming out of it and it was just like no this is new fun interesting what i want to do and and really yeah it is and i was yeah i was just all in now you said you were you were a realtor for like 16 years mm -hmm. right was it was that full-time realtoring or, or was it kind of like you know most mo no most of it was full-time realtoring yeah most of it was that i mean it wasn't i didn't have there was one point like in the crash quote unquote where i did go back to waiting tables briefly mm. um and i remember mark hecht my good buddy mark hecht i'm looking at him and i'm just like because i went from i mean making really good living to suddenly going like holy cow am i going to be able to pay my electric bill yeah and um i'm talking to mark about it so when i worked for prudential in lahaina and i'm like mark what do you think you know like because it was like this huge ego knock to suddenly go like oh i'm gonna go back to waiting tables he goes lawrence you can save your face or you can save your ass you can't do both pick one that is good advice and i went oh okay i'll save my ass yeah <laughs> Where'd you wait tables at? Hula Grill. Oh, how'd you like that? Oh, I loved it. As a matter of fact, I was one of the first people. I wasn't part of the opening crew, but I think I was like the first person hired after the opening crew. Uh, worked there for a while. Um, actually kind of in transitioning from, you know, waiting tables to waiting uh, to, to being a realtor. And then, like I said, as I went back, um, Oren hired me um, back. Um, you know, a lot of kudos to him. He's just like, sure, anytime. So that was cool. Yeah. With your being a realtor, were you like heavily involved in government affairs stuff? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you were you were just ready. You were you were ready when. Oh, uh, I, I, well, it was funny. I I was actually because you know Dave gave this huge notice. Um, 
it was like, like six okay. months or something like that? Oh, no, it was like years. Oh. You know, like a couple of years. It was like, no, listen, I'm leaving in, I don't know, 2015 or whatever the number was. And, and then, you know, they, they formed this committee, like oh, who we're going to replace him with and this whole thing. And I was approached a year before and they said, hey, would you want to take the job? And I was like, not a chance. Like, no way. Don't want that job. Um, and then they approached me again like a year later. I was like, oh, yeah, maybe. Like, I might, I might consider that. And I was also, I think, even deeper into the political you know, um, affairs arena. You know, I was the, the chair of the state government affairs committee, the HARGAC. Um, I was doing a lot of, I, was, I think I went to every single grassroots meeting. You know, I was on all the subcommittees at the, you know, at, at, at RAM and everything like that. And so um, it was almost like, as a matter of fact, one of my really, really good friends, when I took the job, he goes, oh, so now you're going to start getting paid for all the stuff you've been doing for free? <laughs> like, yeah. So, so yeah, I was, I, was, I was pretty waist deep into it or knee deep or chest deep or whatever. So. Did becoming a realtor um, change your politics? Uh, either sort of immediately or over time, nah. you always kind of... No, I mean, the only way that it did, and I think we've talked about this a little bit, is like just understanding if I am going to view this thing that has effect on real estate, real property, buyers, sellers, um, renters, landlords, then there is a lens with which is the realtor lens with which I can look at this. Yeah. But I don't think it necessarily like being a realtor made me, you know, more conservative or any of those things. Nah. More pro business or any of that. No, I don't think so. Are there there any issues that um you had a, a fairly strongly held opinion on and then you you changed your mind. I'm I'm always all the time. by all the time. Do you have I any good examples? I love when that happens though. See like to me I that was like the, the almost like the basis of my radio show was going like, okay, here is what I think. And call me up and tell me I'm full of shit. And, but, but don't just give me, you know, Rush Limbaugh or Rachel Maddow. Yeah. G- give me like why. And the one that just pops into my head is, is I remember there was this, the one, uh, just a guy that called in every single week, Gary, um, that he and I went back and forth on holding gold and silver as a tangible asset in lieu of fiat currency. And, and he just had a really good argument against that. And so it's like, I, I really got what he said and I don't really, I mean, I still have physical silver and I still, but um, I'm not necessarily, I'm not rich enough to own gold, I own silver, yeah. <laughs> is, is um, but I really got his argument. And, and so, and it's funny. The other thing for me is I might, I'm, you know, I am an opinionated a-hole. Just ask me, you know, I got an opinion on everything. But I don't think that there's anything that I'm so entrenched on that I'm going like, okay, you just cannot change my mind on this. Um, because chances are I've probably thought about the side with which you're coming from anyways. Um, but no, so I don't think that there's anything that I would go like, oh, Boom. But I'm trying to think of something in particular that maybe I changed my mind on, but I can't off the top of my head. Mm. You know what, what got me with the gold thing? Mm. Um, the, the refugee crisis. 
Um, it, mm. it, it, that's what really sort of changed my mind about the whole gold currency. Because when, when people talk about holding gold, you know, buying buy gold, invest in right. gold. You I got think, bullion in my, in my chest. Yeah, you think of those commercials on Fox News and, and sort of crazy people. Um, but my, my dad had told me a story when I was younger about when he was a young man leaving the house, or it might have been one of his, his uncles or something, leaving their, their village in Greece. Um, everybody pulled together whatever they had, and they made them a gold chain. Mm. Um, and, and it was very pure gold so that the links could actually be broken apart. And so if he came oh, wow. into like financial troubles, he could, he could break the, the links and, and sell them, pawn them. And then I had heard about um, mm. uh, comedians, old, uh, old Jewish comedians in New York. I'd, I'd listened to this interview with one of them, and he was saying, you know, you ever wonder why all the old comedians have pinky rings? And it was because if they ever had to do a gig and they didn't get paid at the end of the day, they could pawn the pinky ring to get back to New York City. Hey. Uh, and and with the refugee crisis, there there were stories that were coming out along similar lines, where mm -hmm. where money just became useless. Right. Unless you had a, a U.S. hundred dollar bill, that was pretty much the only currency that you can use. And I remember even in being abroad, where where a U.S. hundred dollar bill is the is pretty much the only form of paper currency that's right, 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 um, right. And and so that got me thinking, like, yeah, we should have should have some uh, some tangible assets. In well, yeah, well, I got into it. I got into you know obviously with the big libertarian thing. Yeah. And and like some of the people that you know, like the like I met the guys that started the Tea Party. Because the Tea Party got co-opted by the Republicans, but the original Tea Party, actually, the event that happened was Ron Paul was shut out of one of the uh, Republican national debates. And so they rented the, um, I don't know, it was like a football stadium or something like that, right next door to where the debate was happening. And they held the, the first Tea Party. And so it was like the original part of the Tea Party was pure libertarian. Like it was truly like, let's throw the tea in the harbor. And there, and I met the guy that actually, I don't know if you ever saw Ron Paul had the revolution, it's revolution with love, it's like R and then E, E V O L was is like backwards, Lucian. So it's like the love illusion. Huh. And um, I met those guys, and they were just like, I mean, as a matter of fact, those guys were huge into Bitcoin when it first started. I should have listened to them on that one, but but you know that was where. So I I originally started buying gold. I mean, started started buying silver, not because okay, silver is going to go from fourteen dollars to twenty seven dollars. It was like, okay, I'm buying silver at $14 because one day it might be at $500. Yeah. Like, it was just sort of like, okay, if you can bridge the, like, if a currency collapses, if a fiat currency collapses, eventually everything resets itself, but everybody gets wiped out in the gap between, you know, crash and reset. Yeah. So can you bridge the gap? And that was just kind of my... That yeah. is a good way Cause, to look at it. Because, well, you know, all those, a lot of the hardcore libertarian crazies that I met in Arizona, they're also the doomsday guys, right? Yeah. They're the guys that got bunkers and they got, you know, like more ammo than you could ever live with. And they're like, you know, don't take away my guns, guys. And, and yeah, it, anyways. You ever think about becoming a prepper? One of those doomsday? Oh, I'm kind of, I'm semi-prepper. I'm semi-prepper. My oldest sister who lives on Kauai Oh, she's all in. She has a room. As a matter of fact, my wife and I said, 
if the end of the world comes, we're, however, hook or crook, we're getting to Kauai to go live with my sister because <laughs> they could live for a decade with just the stuff they have. What did you do when you got the missile alert? What was your reaction? I, I never got it. Oh. <laughs> I never got it. I got, the, I got the text that was missile alert canceled or false alarm or what. I got that. Like, I didn't get the in-between. Like, we never had to deal with the holy shit, what are you doing? Like, yeah. we never had to deal with that. It was just That would have been your moment. You, you would have been ready. Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know. But, I mean, when I say I'm semi-prepper is I think I'm prepared in a way with which you just have to be in Hawaii. And that is like, okay, if, if Hurricane Lane would have hit us, I would have been ready. Yeah. Like, right? I, it's just like, I'm not like, you know, I have the dry food. You know, I've got, you know, probably, I don't know, three weeks-ish worth of dried food in the house. You know, like, I, I wouldn't worry about like running to Safeway and the shelves are empty if a hurricane hits us. I just think that that's just that's smart. smart living here. You just need to do that. Although Lane was the very first hurricane in 25 years that I've lived here. It's the very first hurricane I ever prepared for. Hmm. I ever like was like, and maybe it's because I'm now a dad, right? Or it's oh, like, when it's your yeah. shit. But, you know, but that was the only time where I was like, oh, because normally they're coming and I just look, are they going to hit the big island? If they're going to hit the big island, then I stop paying attention because, you know, Mauna Kea just eats them up and spits them out. Um, but if they miss the big island, then I'm going, okay, where are they going? And that one was like, okay, it was going just south and it looked like it was going to turn right at Lahaina. Mm. And I'm going, okay, this one might be real. And it wasn't. So well, that's good. As, as an aging Italian man, do you, um, <laughs> do, and I say this. Thank you for, pre for I'm, prefacing I'm, that whatever question is coming. This is going to be a super weird question. Okay. But I'm, I'm younger than you. I'm a, a slightly younger Italian man. But as I get older, I have more of a compulsion to wear jewelry. And, and does that, oh, that's <laughs> I think funny. it's because of my old Greek father with his gold oh, chains. Oh, that's funny. Maybe I get it from that side. Oh, but. zero. 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 I, as a matter of fact, I, there was a point in time where I, I stopped wearing my wedding, wedding ring for you know, it just, I was like, anyways. And my wife asked me to wear it. Um, she just, you know, it just, and I get it. I mean, she didn't have to ask me twice and she didn't have to explain it. She just goes, you know what? It would just, it, it's important to me that you wear it. And I'm like, okay, done. Um, I wear a watch and that's, I don't want anything else. Like, um, mm. yeah. Man. If I still fiddle with my ring. Like, you know, like when you first get married, oh, yeah. how it's like weird and you fiddle with it because it's, un I still fiddle with my ring. Like it's still, I can, like my thumb still hits it and I still kind of, so, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not on board with the jewelry thing. Yeah. I'm, I gotta tell you, it's because I'm, I don't want to embarrass my wife that I, I don't wear a thick gold chain. <laughs> it's, um, it's really just out of love for my wife. What's the little thing called that looks like a sperm oh, that all the yeah, Italian that, guys that wear? Oh yeah, that Italian horn. Yeah. Thing? <laughs> get one of those and just like freak her out. <laughs> I just want a big medallion. You oh, know? yeah. There you go. And unbutton your shirt down about midway in your chest. <laughs> well, you know, part of me uh, <clears throat> getting this job was that I had to, to promise Peter and David that I was going to button my shirt up more. That was, that was what it was. <laughs> I showed up in the interview with three buttons undone, just nice. feeling very... Do you got the, hair, the chest hair going on and everything not like yet. that, too? No, it's uh, coming okay. in slowly. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. You're not still going through puberty. I, I don't know what it is. It's, it's, um, 
I, I'm not going to complain because I don't have any back hair. So I feel like my, my lack of there you chest go. hair is linked to my lack of, of back you take hair. Take that all day long. Man, our, yeah. our five listeners are learning a lot about both of us <laughs> in, in this episode. <laughs> so let's get back on track. What, okay. are you, um, what, are you, what are you proud of professionally as far as uh, your time working in government affairs, either as a member on the GAC <clears throat> um, or, or as a GAD? Great question. Um, I'm going to say probably the thing I'm most proud of is my contributions to uh, what was affectionately known as Con Am Bad. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I think Ken Haraki deserves just an enormous amount of credit. Um, but I really felt like I actually contributed to that. I really felt like I was instrumental in that change and in, in that victory. Um, so I think that that would, I mean, that's just the one that just pops off because it was such a big thing. Yeah, that's um, huge. The other part that I guess sort of swirls back to is um, I've been told um, that I was, and, and this isn't something that I would have necessarily, but I was told that I was sort of instrumental in, I'm not going to say a complete change, but a change in perception of the realtors. Um, and that is, you know, just as, like, we, you know, we talked about that dogmatic thing or whatever it is, is, um, you know, just being able to work on both sides of the aisle, quote unquote, um, be able to listen to everybody, you know, have input, have um, and not just be completely shut out in certain things is, is um, like I even had one lady in particular. Um, I don't know if I should say, I'm not going to identify her in any way, but. Yeah, put know. her on blast. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's not even in politics, right? She's cursory to it, um, but she's like going, yeah, you, you completely changed the way that I look at all realtors. And so I was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, and it was sort of maybe even around like, you know, the, um, which Dave actually started the Landlord Summit, but there were some things with which along that, and that's kind of how I got to know her and some things like that. But um, anyways, yeah, that, 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 those two things are probably the, I guess, the parts that I look at it, you know, and even like, I think you had said before, when you were hired, you were sort of given an edict to, you know, make nicey nice with yeah. everybody and, build and bridges. you build bridges and all of those things. So I think that I'd like to think that I sort of helped lay some of the groundwork for you to be able to to take that and run with it and, and do what you do. Oh, I mean, absolutely. It, it's sort of undeniable when, you, especially with an institution like like mm. the realtors, um, you your work was dependent on the the groundwork laid by Dave. Right. My work is dependent on the groundwork laid by you and Dave, and and right. you know, even before that. Right. So it's yeah. I mean. There wouldn't be any any bridge building if you hadn't already started that process of, of bridge building. And I love Dave, but but he he can be polarizing. He and and he was so it, involved in in partisan politics for so long, right? Um, that that it's it's difficult for that not to follow uh, follow him into to this arena. Yeah, and but I think that that was also part of like because if you remember, Dave was basically on his way out. When the GMO thing and and you know we call it the shock movement or you know you call it whatever you want to call it, he was sort of 
on his way out and I was on my way in at the same time that change was happening. So in a way, you know, it was sort of fortuitous that someone who did draw lines and should have draw lines sort of retired fortuitously at the same time that someone who was, say, more akin to, you know, building bridges when, you know, say, you know, the establishment, quote unquote, is shifting. Mm. And so there, there was something about that. And I, and I just, I, you know, I mean, I just have the belief that everything happens for a reason. Everything happens perfectly. So, you know, my time was good to just sort of set the stage for whatever it is that, you know, that you're going to unfold, you know, because it's, it's changing again. Right. Yeah. So not only did, okay, was there the, the phase from like, say, establishment that Dave was a part of to say this interim, okay, change is happening to now, you know, the, the quote unquote five, four is the other way, quote unquote. So it's just like, so now you're in the midst of that. And how is it that you then have to navigate? So it's just like, so you, your personality, your style is perfect for whatever that thing is, is now unfolding to be. When you joined up with, with the realtors, did you, uh, were you intimidated or, or did you have this anticipation that you were going to become part of the establishment kind of like Dave DeLeon did where, where you would be with the realtors for 10 years and you would be. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. In all my interviews, everything like that. And I, I full, I was all in as a matter of, I mean, I even had like one of my really, really good friends was like, dude, I thought that like this was going to be you for the next 10, 15 years. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that it was, it was a shock for, and, and that's, and I think that there's still some people that hold resentment. Honestly, I'll be very, very truthful. I think that there's still some people in the realtors association that still hold resentment that I didn't do that, mm. that, that I did leave. And, and I didn't do the same thing that Dave did. I didn't give this, you know, hey, here's, a, you know, I'm going to give you time to find the right person and I'm going to da 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 Because I thought about it. Like, you know, okay, you know, what do I owe and not owe and, and those types of things. And um, I, I just made the decision to, to give a two weeks notice. You know, I mean, I, is... Um, and it was a conscious decision. It wasn't like I just upped and did it out of nowhere. Um, I thought about it and for selfish reasons. It's okay. Yeah. Gave, gave a two week notice. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's business. <laughs> well, it's like, it, it really kind of reflected back to the conversation of my father, you know, we were saying earlier where he's, he's saying like, you know, you know, this thing of working for the association for 30 years and retiring with the gold watch and yada, yada, yada is, you know, isn't really that. And I remember my dad also telling me, and this is a guy that was sort of at the top of the food chain in Ma Bell. He says, if you ever think you're, you know, not expendable, quit. Yeah. Everyone is expendable. Right. It's just like to think like, oh, no one will ever find a gad like me. And then they come along and say, oh, no, actually, Jason's better than you. You know, it's just like, so, it, 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 no, but I mean, to just accept that, to be like, yeah, okay, you know, mm -hmm. they will go on. Like, the world's not going to end because I suddenly, you know, am no longer the gad. It's yeah. just like, that's just, you know, so that, and that was part of it too, of going like, okay, how much obligation do I have or not? It's just going like, listen, they're going to be fine. Mm. Like, the association's not, and, and they are. Yeah, I just, I want to say right now, if, if anybody still has ill will towards you, they need to shut up because <laughs> I'm very happy that you, you left. There um, you go. I love this job. I'm very happy that I have it now. 
uh, and I'm not giving it up. So that's <laughs> and that's and that's fair. No, I, I I can understand why people might have their feelings hurt, especially of course with, I, I can too with somebody like Dave setting you know that that standard beforehand. But um, yeah, I mean, I gave two weeks notice on, on my old job. Like it, it's it's just how it, it goes, and, and you're absolutely right. Right, know, people people are. Yeah, I think it's a little bit different though too, because I mean, part of it's personal. You know, mm. you, you get to know people. You work. For, you know, it's it's not like okay, you were just at a law firm and, yeah. the, you know, you got to tell the partners and you leave. It's like, this is an association, 1,700 people, right? I think it was like, I don't know, 1,550 or 1,600 people when I left. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, you do the podcast. I did my videos. Um, you know, I still run into people. And, and I knew all these people, a lot of them, before I became dad. Yeah. Right? And, so, and, then, and then I think it was a little bit also awkward for people when it's like, okay, you're no longer the guy, but all of a sudden I get my license again and I start showing up again. It's like going, oh, wait a second, hang on. And, you know, and I'm not a wallflower. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, so I, I, I completely get why people would be upset, mad, hurt, um, feel awkward. I, I get all of that. Yeah. Totally understand. Some folks got really weird with me about it where, where they were like, are you okay with Lawrence coming to, to the, the community? And to me, it's... I recognize you're an asset. I mean, well, I appreciate it is that. Thank so, you. Um, you know, the position is so entwined with who you are, as you said, because you're out in the world and you're meeting people and whatnot. Right. So it would be just, it would be ridiculous for me to to not want a member who's well educated and and well positioned uh, to advise me on things well, that no, they know uh, about. Um, right. No, and I appreciate because you you have said that to me, Jason. And I do appreciate that. And the other part that I think we we actually have talked about as well in the past is. I try to be really conscious of the fact that I'm not just another member, that mm. I did have your job before, and that there are certain things that aren't appropriate for me to do or say or whatever it is. But the other part that, but also because I've had your job, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And there's members that sit in our committee and or people that are in just the general membership that don't have any idea what it is that you really do and yeah. some of what you come up against. And so, and there's gonna be some times that'll, you know, it'll actually be, and it may have already happened, who knows, but where I'm gonna be your biggest advocate because I know what you're going through, right? I know what you're up against. And I'm going like, okay, no, 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 no. I wish I had somebody in the room that could just go like, hang on, because I can't say this, right? Like I'm an employee right now, like y'all are sitting here and there's certain things that, that I can't say, that I'm dying to say, but I know I can't because I work for you. Yeah. You now have somebody sitting in the audience, and again, because I'm not a wallflower, is that might just say that. Say that thing that, that you might be thinking, going like, hang on, that's just bullshit, but I can't say it's bullshit because I'm the gad, where I'm just another you know, asshole with an opinion that <laughs> happens to be a member, that I say like, okay, I can say that. So that's the other part that, that you know, I look at with our relationship or, or but I also got to get that it's like I, I, I want to be really conscious that I don't get in your way and that I don't, you know, um, uh, do anything to take away from what it is that you're doing because what you're doing is great. And I think even that first breakfast that we met, you know, you asked because you're feeling a little, you know, I mean, it was a brand new oh, job yeah. and it's just like going, you're going like, holy I didn't shit, even realize that I was a lobbyist. I, I didn't. Really, I think it took me a few few weeks to realize, like, oh, I need to register as a lobbyist. This right, <laughs> right, right, right. And I remember you going like, and, and you knew you hadn't done real estate before, you know, you hadn't done lobbying. And you're going like, how long is it going to take me to get this? And I think I said, 
you know, you'll get your feet in probably like two years. And then, you know, and I remember the look on your face was like, and I think you even asked, are they going to give me that long? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like what? And no, you picked on, you picked up way fast and, and you're super smart and you, you're doing an awesome job. And, and, and it's one of those things that I think you get, like you now know a year later way more than you did a year ago, which is just truthful. And, and so it's, and it's, it's always going to, life is just a learning curve anyways. And so it's, is, but I even told you then, like, I really want to stay out of your way. Mm. Well, as I, much as I'm the former Gad, I don't want to be the former Gad. Just, I'm just Lawrence. Hands down, the best advice you gave me was don't try and do the job the way you do the job. Right. Hands down. Mm. Um, and, and I think if, if I had, if I tried to duplicate you or, or Dave or to mimic right. how you guys did it, um, I would I would still be floundering a, a year in. Um, mm. I, I think it's because you you empowered me with that one simple mm. piece of advice cool. to say just do do you just get it done. Um, that made me realize like oh yeah I, I can do this uh, as is. So no that was that was good advice and you don't you you are doing a great job of not getting in my way at all and I think that that's also cool. in part because stylistically you and I just are a little bit different and we we right. think differently. Um, what do you, are there any regrets that you have? We, we talked about things that you were proud of <laughs> from your time as GAD. Is, is there anything in particular that you regret from your time working as GAD or in political advocacy? Gosh, um, you know, there's always, I guess one can always second guess them. So, like, you know, so it's like, okay, you know, I think, ah, like, oh, maybe I should have said this or I shouldn't have done that. Um, I don't think regret. I don't think there's any regrets. Mm. Um, are there th certain things that I've gone like, okay, and if I could reset that, and maybe say it a little bit differently, or do that other thing a little bit differently, I would. Um, you know, just in you know, Monday morning quarterback, twenty twenty hindsight kind of thing. Um, but I don't think that there was any like regrets. Yeah. No, like like going, oh damn, no, none of those. Because life is also failure. Yeah. Right? You guys so, I mean, was I perfect? No. Did I win everything? No. Did I, you know, it's just like, yeah, okay. Um, you know, I guess I could go into any sort of cliched uh, sports analogy of, you know, it's not a never falling, but getting up after every fall. <laughs> or, you know, one of those things. So. All right. Um, okay. We're at, we're at the two hour mark. Oh, um, geez. So, shut so, up, Lawrence. <laughs> so, no, I don't want you to shut up. Um, but what I am going to say is maybe we're going to forego the rest of your past. Um, uh -oh. We're not going to jump back unless, okay. unless there's a, a highlight you want to hit for, for that. Uh, I don't know. Um, We've talked way, way too much about it. But I do have one question about your what, what sports did you play? Um, well, growing up as a kid, you know, just you sort of played whatever was in season. So I went from, you know, basketball to baseball, the football, the basketball, football, you know, those, um, I was also a golfer. Um, in high school, I kind of gravitated. I, I just sort of focused more mainly on basketball. So I got a scholarship to play basketball in college. I also got a scholarship to play golf in college. Oh, wow. Um, my basketball coach said I had to pick one. I couldn't play both. So I picked, obviously that was my passion. So I picked basketball, um, played for two years, um, and then went to the university of Arizona, <clears throat> which realizing I suddenly was just like going, wow, I miss sports. My dorm roommate was playing rugby at University of Arizona. And he just goes, why don't you play rugby? And I'm like, what's rugby? 
like, come on out, let's just play. And I'm just wanting to be part of a team. I came out and played rugby and um, ended up being pretty successful at that as well. And um, uh, came this close to, I guess, making the national team, not the national, but the regional team, which is to the national team. Anyways, but I was sort of, uh, I guess, maybe for my dad's ability to hit a baseball and whatever it is, I was, I, I can't take credit for my natural athletic ability it's just yeah. like you know that's sort of just a god-given thing that you you know you some people are tall some people are short some what it's like so um anyways i was fairly successful at in playing rugby and then i played for you know another like 10 years after that when i first came to maui 25 years ago i was still playing rugby it was me and all tongans in lahaina <laughs> and i still know a lot of people in tongan community in lahaina because of that and it was just like and, I, and it's funny they none of them know my name they just know me as howley boy it's really funny. Like it's just like some of my really, really good buddies. Hey, Holly boy, how are you? Um, and so that was that was a wonderful experience. Just and and because of rugby, that's also what gave me the bug to go like travel and go around the world and go to different places. Um, I was able to play internationally, and so um, yeah, it's a pretty brutal. And I've had four concussions that I know of. Oh wow! Um, through that, each one of them have a very you know funny, unique story. But we don't need to go down that. But um, yeah, so that's sort of you know um, still love to play golf. I don't play anymore. I mean, I haven't played in probably five. Actually, I played for the first time last, like two weeks ago for the first time in like five years. Um, but yeah. You should uh, you should check out jiu-jitsu. Tim Stice is, is into it. Yeah. I, I, you know why I want to try jiu-jitsu? It's actually for my daughter. Mm. I want my daughter to get into jiu-jitsu. I don't want her to get into, because jiu-jitsu is one of those, again, becoming from a guy that's had a bunch of concussions. Yeah. Is I don't you know like it's a it's the least of the martial arts that I know of, um, to where you're not gonna you know you're not that punch hit thing, but I want her to be able to know that you know she's she's a badass and that you know nobody can f with her. Jujitsu would be great. For right? No, I yeah. think and I think she kind of has that makeup too. We'll see. Um, although she, right now she couldn't sit still for. Yeah, you know. she's like three. Yeah, she's three, three and a half. Three and a half. She, she's not doing it. But there's part of me I'm going to get her a gi. Maybe that's what I'll do. I'll get her a gi for Christmas or something like that. Oh, My wow. wife will be like, "What are you doing?" They have some adorable gis too. Yeah, you could I'm probably sure. even get her like a frozen gi. <laughs> <laughs> it's got Anna and Elsa on it. That'd oh, be okay. Great for it. Um, all right. Well, I want to I want to move on to to some of our our wrap up questions. Okay. And you you. We're not in a hurry. You can take as long as you want. Okay. You can go on as many tangents as you want. Okay. This is your show, Lawrence. Oh, jeez. <laughs> the so, question is, will I have the heart to go back and listen to it? Oh, I don't worry. I don't listen to any of them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not one of my five listeners. No, but no, but I'm going like, am I, am I so narcissistic that I'm going to want to go listen to two hours of myself talking? Oh, that is a good question. <clears throat> yeah, we'll have to see. I'll let you, I'll let you know. Yeah, let me know about that. <laughs> um, what book would you recommend, Lawrence Carnicelli? Hmm. God, there's so many good ones. Hmm. You know what? I'm gonna. I gotta go with just what popped into my head. The Four Agreements. Oh, I love that one. That's Four one agreements. of those super hippy dippy ones. Too. <laughs> well, but if you go to my bookshelf, it's just like that's anything. That's my whole bookshelf is all that genre. Have you? Um, have you I'm, I'm currently in the middle of the Course in Miracles, so oh. I was going to say that, but that's not a book I would recommend. That book has to like 
come to you. You Is can't it, go seek it out, I don't think. Who, who, that, that crazy lady running for, for president, did she write that or did she? No, 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 Marianne Williamson. Yeah. No, no, she, she's just a practitioner. She's just a practitioner. And yeah. she's not super crazy. That, that wasn't right of me to say, call her a crazy person. Uh, she's a little bit weird, but she's. It, to be running for president, she is, she's just, ah. and like, you know, if you're going to go to a self-help conference, She's going to be the keynote speaker. Mm. If you go to the Democratic National Convention, she's kooky. Yeah. No, that that's a very accurate way <laughs> to describe Marion Williamson. We just need love, y'all. Right. There is no such thing as... The, the only thing that's real is love. Fear is not real. My favorite was during the debate when she started yelling at everybody for having plans. <laughs> right. I think she's probably one of those people that doesn't want to have a Department of Defense. She wants to have a Department of Peace. I, you know, I, I can get behind something like that. Well, think about this. When we had the Department of War, we weren't really in conflict. Mm. And then we changed the name from the Department of War to the Department of Defense. And now we're always at war. So maybe what we need to do is just change the name back to the Department of War. And we'll be out of war. That would be better. We, we wouldn't be so keen on funding the Department of War uh, right. As much as we do with the Department of Defense. Right. Yeah. Right. I um I actually love the idea of compulsory public service. Um, mm, I don't. See, that's the libertarian in me. Yeah. That's, but but my version of compulsory public service would be like a a draft. So so not necessarily everybody serving, though. Ideally, I think it would be everybody. But what you do is you basically tell all the the youth in America, eighteen to to twenty six. You say, you know, if you get drafted. You have to serve in, you can serve in any branch of the military that you want. You get to pick, um, or you get to do AmeriCorps or Peace Corps. I knew that that's because you're, because yeah. you, that's your bent on it. So it's and, just... and I firmly believe that, that in the first round, you're going to get tons of, of uh, aggressive young men like, like I was who like, yeah, let's go in the Marines. So, so the Marines and the Army are going to be. But they stop taking people. And then after that, though, I think in the, the future rounds of the draft, AmeriCorps and Peace Corps are going to be packed with people. And you're really going to discover what the identity of America is. Are we the type of people that invest in the Department of Defense? Or are we the type of people that invest in, in the Department of, of Peace? You know, are, right. are, are our youth more interested in serving in the military? Or are they more interested in going out to, to local communities um, both in America or, or abroad, and just helping people as far right. as being teachers or, <clears throat> or whatnot. Um, and I think that would, I, Susan Rice was, was on Bill Maher last week, and she also said something about compulsory public service as a means to, to stop the divisiveness in our, in our national community. Because when you have folks who are taken up from all these different communities around America and drop someplace to work together, it's really hard for you know the i'm going to use two white guys for for the the liberal white guy in new york um who's grown up one way to keep on hating the the conservative white guy in the south right. when they have to work together and they realize oh my god we like a lot of the same things and we actually have a lot of the same policies with how we treat people and what we want for people do, do you uh, yes i i mean I, first off i mean same thing that you're saying, different way of saying it. I think every American should be forced to leave the country. And I don't mean mm. go to Canada or Mexico. I mean, like, go, you know, go see 
a different culture of some sort. Like, Go to you know, one of the shithole countries. Right, oh, even this better. One those e even ones better. That, yeah, yeah. They got labeled a shithole country. Go there and see. Right, and just and, and just experience the fact, like, okay, these people are human too. Like yes. one of my favorite one of my favorite things to do when I was traveling was to just go open a map. And in my favorite country that I've ever been to is China because, like, when I was there in China back in '97, there was no English. Like the only remotely English thing that I would come across was like McDonald's. And, but I just remember being in Tiananmen Square and I'm looking for the subway station and I had my little Lonely Planet book open and I would say, excuse me. And then, and then I would point to the Chinese character that said subway. And then I would say, please. And, you know, they would, you know, blah, 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 blah. And they would point and I'd like, oh, okay. And I would say, thank you. And then I would go until I was lost again. And then I would ask the next person. And what I realized is just like, okay, we're all just humans, right? Yeah. Like, like, okay, we're bombing Syria right now. I don't have a beef with anyone in Syria. Personally, I have no beef with anyone in Syria. And I bet you that there's some guy sitting there doing a podcast in Syria right now that has no beef with me. And so, you know, it's governments hate governments. And, and if we forced Americans to go explore other countries and at least experience other cultures, it would help us tremendously. Mm, totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for your book recommendation, The Four Agreements, have you read Siddhartha by Herman Hesse? I think it was Herman Hesse. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I was going to yeah, say, yeah. if you haven't, you definitely need oh, to yeah, read yeah. that. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's a matter of fact, that's on my bookshelf. That's yeah, one that, of was, the books. that was one of those ones that changed my life. Yeah. After I read The Four Agreements. No, that was, that was, that's a really good book. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is guaranteed to make you smile? Oh, my daughter. Easy answer. Easy. Oh, that's an easy that one. one. Oh, yeah. Just, just the thought of her just makes me smile. <laughs> that's an easy one. What goal do you have that you haven't achieved yet? Oh, to be six foot six. <laughs> <laughs> or to attain enlightenment. Um, anyways, those are, let's say, I guess those are the, yeah, I always wanted to be six, six. Anyways, um, what goal, what, what was the, how did you phrase it? What goal do you have that you have not achieved yet? Gosh, I mean, I, I want, it's funny, my mind is going to these like, esoteric like to be the perfect father or to be enlightened or, yeah you know but like tangible worldly earthly goals nah that's just like i mean i have aims there are certain things that you know it's like okay like my wife and i are trying to find a lot and build a house and that'll be cool but it's not like okay if that happens you know oh here's here's another one that just popped in i want to see a Barcelona football match in Camp Nou in Barcelona. I want to I want to see Lionel Messi play at Camp Nou in Barcelona. There we go. That's a good goal. There we go. That's, That's a good goal. I like that definable, one. Definable, achievable. I'm going to go. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. I like it. Um, what is something you learned recently? Poo. <laughs> oh God, what is something I learned recently? I'm on the other side. <laughs> they did a number on you they did <laughs> they did well it, it was so unexpected i am um, um, i had a moment like that when i was leaving after testifying on the injection well issue um i was getting one of the guys who testified after me started talking about how men in suits are coming and they're trying to tell us what to do oh, and there was there was nobody in a suit there Mind you, but I was wearing like a blazer. So I was wearing slacks and a dress shirt uh -huh. and a blazer. So he kept on saying this men in suits 
phrase. And then when I left the, the chamber to go to the elevator, because they had gone into executive session, um, some teenagers behind me started, you know, saying men in suits and and talking trash mm. and just heckling me. And I didn't I didn't turn around and look at them. I just kind of laughed and shook my head. But that one stuck with me for yeah. like a week. This just me bitterly. I'd be, you know, in the shower washing and be like, men in suits. What? I wasn't even wearing a suit. Right. <laughs> I, I, I'm laughing. I'm going like, it would be really funny. I'd turn around and be like, I'm sorry, but I'm wearing a blazer. Yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> just sometimes. And, and like people had said far worse to me. One guy sitting next to me actually called me a liar. You know, he's like, you're a liar. And I remember saying, you know, what am I lying about? He, yeah. Right. Um, but that didn't even stick with me as much as just the soundbite of this guy saying, you know, just men in suits trying to tell us what to do. Um, so I, I completely understand the, the compulsive sort of obsession with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, but as far as like what I've learned, it's funny. Like to me, I, I don't go to the cognitive you know, like, okay, I didn't know this and now I learned it as much as it is like there was a new experience. Mm. Like that's, those are the things that kind of like, and that was an experience because it was impactful or like even just an experience with my daughter. Like those again, be going back to like just the, the scenario with which she came into the world, you know, in my juxtaposition between life and death. And so like, those are the things that like stick with me. It's like, as far as learning, it's not necessarily like, okay, I now know what two plus two is or something like that. It's more like, oh, wow, I had this new experience, mm. like this new sensation, this new revelation that, that may not even be tangible. Yeah, it, like, it, it shapes or reshapes your way of interfacing with the world around you. Yeah, it brings me so into the moment. You know, it's just like there's just continuously, like I'll get pinged with stuff like that. And it's just like, and there is no, you know, past or future it's just like it's just like oh wow that just brought me to now yeah i um i i don't have any kids but i've got nieces and, and nephews mm. and and i've worked as a, a school teacher and, and it's really the the birth of my my nieces and my <clears throat> nephews and, and also working with kids um gave me a similar sort of compassion it softened me mm. a lot because now especially if it's somebody that i disagree with or just don't like mm. um i find myself reminding myself that they were a kid like yeah. they you know they were one of the the this little kids that I had as a student or you know at some point they were just a baby like my my niece and my nephew um, and and we're all sort of the product of of the people and and actions that have influenced us and informed us um, but it makes me more compassionate to recognize that you know you're, you're somebody's baby I think empathy you know, that's just like, especially in the political world, I remember when I was dad, I, we would, I would try to talk about empathy as much as I can because, you know, empathy and sympathy are two different things, right? Mm. You know, it's like most people want to be sympathetic. You know, they, they, they want to put themselves in, you know, like, oh, oh, you know, where empathy is just an understanding, right? Like, oh, I get why you would feel that way, right? Like, okay, you know, like there's oftentimes it's like, okay, I don't subscribe to that. And maybe even that other person doesn't want me, my sympathy, but what they want is my understanding. They want yeah. my empathy. You know, can you just get it? Can you get that I might feel differently than you? Yeah, I, I can get that. I can, you know, and I don't understand it, but I get that you feel that way. 
Um, and I think that that's an important aspect of it too, is just you know, is to have empathy, which then gives you understanding, which also then leads to sim sympathy as well, maybe. Mm. So that's, that's one of the things that troubles me the most about the, the rise of identity politics. It's that mm. there's less room for empathy. Right, that's, a good, that's very well said, yeah. Because now a lot of yeah. folks, they don't even want your empathy. They, right. they feel like it's, it's um, insulting if you try and empathize. Because, because you're the victimizer. Yes. If you're the victimizer, then you can't be empathetic to me. I, I, I can't have you, because now I have to be empathetic to you, right? Yeah. If, you're, if I'm the victim and, you know, in identity politics and you're my victimizer, then we can't have empathy. There has That's to be division. Point. Yeah, because the moment I, I, you recognize that my empathy for you is valid, then suddenly we're, we're almost aligned. Right, we're <laughs> right. It's just like, well, you're human. You're, you're, I, mean, there's just, I mean, there's a whole lot of part of, like you know, we could go down the whole rabbit hole of what is you know, victim-victimizer you know, psychology and just what's needed for that framework to stay in place. And one of the things that dissolves it is empathy. So, yeah. so it's like, so no, I don't, I don't want you. You know, it's like, I need for you to be bad. Yeah. Because if you're not bad, then there's, then I have to turn inward. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and the, the problem on the opposite side is that oftentimes we think that, that our capacity for empathy is absolution in and of itself. Oh, so, that's that's well said, so yeah. it's this notion that, well, I can understand why the, the 30 meter telescope is, is upsetting to you. So, so my job is done. Mm. Because I understand. I, I, can, I can recognize your pain and I can, I can internalize it myself. And, and it's like, well, not quite. I mean, you know, yeah, we haven't lived in, in a system of, of systemic oppression that has kept us and our, our people group at, at bay for so long. Um, but, but yeah, it stifles a lot of conversations mm -hmm. when one party thinks that their empathy is, is penance enough and the other party thinks that, that empathy is, is insulting sure. because you can't fully appreciate it. Well, and I think that, yeah, that's where like the ego can really grab a hold of that. Something that can be very pure of, you know, that empathy can be very pure and then the ego grabs a hold of it. And like you said, like, oh, I've now absolved myself of feeling any guilt because I've been empathetic, Yeah, you know? And so, and, and, and then on the other side, it's going like, well, no, if I'm coming from the heart space and you're coming from the head space, then I need to be more empathetic or I need to be more, I need to be more tied into the emotional part of it and the feeling part of it. And so you being empathetic is almost like, oh, that's condescending. Yeah. I'm the one that's supposed to be more, you know, aligned or whatever it is. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it is interesting how just, yeah the ego wants to co-opt, you know, all of it and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. Tackling the deep issues. <laughs> all right. One final question for you, Lawrence. What is one piece of advice you would give to anyone listening? Love is the answer. Love is the answer. I feel like I've, I've gotten that from, or, or similar sentiments from people. I think it's a good piece of advice. Um, yep. Maybe not that exact sentiment. But yeah. Is either love is the answer or the answer is love. Mm. One of the two. And if the answer is not love, you're asking the wrong question. All right. That seems like a good place to stop. <laughs> let's, let's end on that. I want to give you a hug. Yeah, let's, let's, <laughs> we'll, we'll hug when we get the mics off. Okay. <laughs> and then you'll, you'll just have to come in. Next time you, you're in the neighborhood, just stop in. I'll put on the recorder and we'll, we'll record another episode. This oh, will be good. Give me a backlog. Oh, All right, all. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Take care.